Hello, welcome back to Metastation. I'm Erin. I am a professor in Mississippi. I'm Claire. I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon. And we are back uh, to continue our season one podcasts with episode 109, Unity Days, which is, again, legitimately hard to say. So nobody give (laughs) Bob Morley and Eliza any slack for those notorious outtakes where they could not say Unity Days because it's really like, try saying it fast. Unity Unity Days. Unity Days. I feel like I've never had trouble with it, but you and I have had this conversation before, but I I guess I don't think of it as being something that's particularly hard to say. Really? Yeah, Unity Days. I mean, well, okay, well, now I just, I just kind of I was so smug and then I ruined it. Unity days. Unity days. Unity days. I guess you did it. See, it's just like too easy. Unity days. Anyway. Or it's not even days. It's unity day. I keep saying days because that's the kind. Yeah, because that's how it is in my head. Yeah. In Vancouver, January 19th through 21st. 2018. Be there or be square. <laughs> that was a little accidental plug. I didn't plan yeah. on that one, but you know, it, it offered day. itself up. Yeah. Unity, Unity day. day. Yes. Anyway, thanks a lot for that one, Kim Shumway <laughs> and Kira Snyder. Creating uh. this problem for everyone involved, or at least for me and Bob Morley. Anyway, uh. so we have, um, I have a lot of ranting about Finn to do today, yeah. but before we get there... We are going to start on the arc with the other person that I, you know, kind of really, really, really love to hate in season one, which is Diana Sidney. Oh, God. She's such yes. a great villain character. Yep. <laughs> I treasure that woman. She's so horrible. Yes. In the best, most completely plausible way. And this episode, you know, this is really sort of, well, I guess this is obviously, this is her last episode because she dies in the explosion, but this is really the, so it's the culmination. Spoiler alert. Okay. I guess, well, we're not there yet <laughs> sorry spoilers for season one but oh wait no but, but way- by the end of this never mind never mind i'm sorry because she's yeah. dead by the end of the episode yeah i'm sorry yes yeah. spoilers so- for 10 minutes from now when we get to that scene if you're if you stopped watching this episode for the first time halfway through in order to listen to a podcast about it spoiler alert <laughs> But also, don't do that. <laughs> but also, what are you doing? This feels like your right. fault. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I don't take responsibility for your weird life choices. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway. Anyway. Three minutes cheek. in. Three minutes in, we're already yeah. derailed. <laughs> Good work, team. Uh, but... So, so Diana, so the, what I love about the way that Diana is introduced and the way her art kind of evolves over this season is that, and we talked about this in, I forget which number it was, it was when she's first introduced. I think 107 maybe? Yeah. So she like, she doesn't have a big arc. She's only in three, maybe four episodes. Yeah. And she sort of comes off as immediately shady in some vague ways you can't quite quite put your finger on and so one of the things that I like about this episode even though it is you know her end game is so horrible and so destructive is that I find it so tremendously satisfying watching the other characters put the pieces together yeah like in that sort of the sort of visceral satisfaction of watching people solve a mystery like because then we they do some interesting stuff in the last you know previous episode sort of playing around a bit with dramatic irony where we have figured Mm -hmm. out out before the other characters have that Diana is shady. You know, we know Mm -hmm. things 
things that the other characters don't know. And we're waiting for Jaha and Abby and Kane to figure out that Diana is the one behind it. And so you're so just like impatient, waiting for them, like waiting for the penny to drop. And then watching as one by one, Abby first and then Kane and then Jaha, side-eyeing her, noticing her suspicious behavior, calling her out until the sort of final competition when she's like, yeah, bitches, I'm the villain. What are you going to do about it? I have your shit, you know? <laughs> but I, like, I get, I sometimes get really stressed out by, this is just like a, like a long-running childhood sort of bugaboo of mine. I get really fidgety with any storyline where somebody is like secretly evil but everyone thinks they're nice or like body snatchers or they're like possessed by a demon and people like don't know it like anytime somebody is trusting somebody that like then we the audience know is evil I'm just like figure it out figure it out oh my god <laughs> figure it out more Sinclair Robbins like I just get so antsy <laughs> and so like, like I, so like I I take such a vis gut level satisfaction you know in the moment where Abby gives Diana the first this bitch is shady once over and then when Kane is like like when Abby figures out that Diana left before the explosion and Kane yeah. confronts her on it like the two of them and, and which is also just like my little cabbie shipper heart this is the first time I feel like that we really see them team up on something like the, yeah, there are the yeah, two yeah. people who spot first like Diana is the person who is behaving strangely she leaves before the explosion she's kind of cagey about where she was and so even before Abby you know hiding out in the ship overhears the whole thing you're sort of like watching them put the pieces together watching them watch her so I just I love the way that over the course of the episode it's sort of them getting closer and closer to figuring out what actually happens until the sort of big culmination of it. but I like the sort of the way they resolve the mystery that begins in the pilot with who shot Jaha you know this is really where that storyline kind of comes to a you know big explosive conclusion but I think it doesn't get we don't talk enough I think about how neatly and and elegantly the kind of murder mystery whodunit part of that arc storyline unfolds over these first nine episodes you know like who shot Jaha and why and what was their ultimate goal and where was it going and then how does the rest of the community find out what happened like that whole sort of resolution is actually it's really elegantly done yeah no I agree yeah and I I just I really really love you know and I hadn't watched this episode in a long time until until I watched it last night for this, but that first interaction between Diana and Abby during uh, Jaha's speech, mm-hmm. where you can sort of, it's that, like you said, it's that sort of like uncomfortable feeling where like Abby, you know, who doesn't necessarily like Diana, I think, but doesn't really like think much of, about her either way, slowly sort of twigs to like, this isn't a normal conversation. Yeah. It's not normal for her to come up to me and talk to me like this. You know, she's, like, commenting on the length of his speech in a way that's really Mm -hmm. weird. You know, she's, like, this sort of where she's just kind of slowly, you can sort of see her being like, okay, Diana, that's Mm -hmm. weird. And then, like, you know, and then you watch that puzzle piece sort of slot into place after the explosion when she over, when she's, like, overhearing Kane and Jaha talking about, like, where did Diana go? You can sort of see her going, like, oh, like, this little thing, 
like it was it was bizarre for her to say like oh he's finishing his speech earlier and then she yeah, kind of yeah. you know you could tell that Abby doesn't really buy the excuse that she gave you know you can sort of see that slotting into place so it is like very very nicely sort of like set up and and plays out mm-hmm. and Abby is kind of like the first you know and I think that fits because Abby's the one who's like more attuned to things like people's sort of behavioral signals yeah then certainly Jaha and even Kane who's of course like distracted at that point anyway because his mom had right. just died which is heartbreaking which we'll come back to yeah <laughs> yes yes yeah. <laughs> but yeah like it's sort of interesting too I think in this episode like the, as the kind of end game unfolds with Sydney like I think the other cool thing about Diana Sydney is they're very like deliberate how they pace out you know the sort of information you get about her what she's like as a person you know so she's sort of introduced as being concerned for her people and concerned to help Jaha and then it slowly becomes clear that she has some kind of ulterior motive involving like wanting to insinuate her way back into power and I think the big shift at the end of the previous episode at the end of Day Trip you don't really have a sense of like I think you know it's clear to the audience that she's manipulative you know that she's shady Mm -hmm. that she's like trying to like manipulate Jaha she's trying to like play things off so she can get back on the council she's she's really you know interested in the exodus ship she has some kind of plan but you don't really like the twist with Shumway at the end of day trip you know you don't we don't have a sense as an an audience of how ruthless she really is you know until that moment when we watch her sacrifice Shumway so I think coming off of that being the very last thing in the storyline in day trip and then picking up in this episode I think another little piece of dramatic irony in this episode is that even as Abby and Kane and Jaha put together that Shumway or excuse me that uh Sydney is up to something we know that there is basically no length she won't go to we know that she'll sacrifice her people that she'll sacrifice anyone she has to to get this done they don't really fully know that they aren't aware that she will go to these extreme lengths until the crisis point hits so I think that's like another little bit of eeriness thrown in you know like we know how much she's willing how many other people she's willing to kill or or let die and make this happen and they're just kind of like still operating under the assumption that she has the same kinds of concerns and (laughs) and moral you know like limitations as they do yeah like she's she's one of them but with a different agenda and it's like no she will take out absolutely anybody like she would do things that the three of them would never even occur to them to right. do you know to exactly shoot their own person yeah yeah and so and and then also that they you know that they don't really they know that she's like up to something and watching the collective like all the brains that it takes to put together what her actual plan is you know like Sinclair gets in the game Mm -hmm. you know like all of the you know figuring out why our station's losing power you know like Mm -hmm. where like where is she where did she go and then and watching them sort of put together the pieces of like oh what she's doing is she's stealing the exodus ship for herself for her own people and without waiting for the I don't know science technobabble without waiting for everything to like power down correctly by just sort of pulling loose from the ship that she's essentially sentencing everyone left on the ark to death by like shutting down all of their vital life support systems and that's the kind of thing that was ruthless even as Jaha is like that would never occur to him yeah right you know? exactly and someone like Jaha or or Kane even Kane you know pre-culling Kane you know would never never imagine compromising the life support systems of the ark to jettison an exodus ship while there were people yeah. still on the ark never yeah. they would never imagine do that they would never be an acceptable type of sacrifice mm-hmm. so like 
like, of course, it doesn't even occur to them that she would be willing to do that, you know, that she is so determined to get herself and the people who follow her to the ground at all costs that literally at any cost, you know, there is no secret exception to that. Yeah. And that even, you know, after the scope of death and destruction that happens at the explosion, that her response is, we should have built a bigger bomb. Yeah. We should have killed more people. It would have been easier if we had killed more people because the real target of it was Jaha. Right. Yeah, exactly. And and so just that level of utter, almost inhuman, ruthless coldness with which she just barrels ahead and like executes her plan where everything that gets in the way is just an impediment to be cleared out as efficiently as possible, whether it's her people or whatever, I just think is so, she's just such a beautifully crafted villain. Yeah, yeah. Because her motivations are so clear. You understand exactly why she's doing what she's doing and the way that it's all sort of like the little bits and pieces that you get as you watch where you're just like, what is she up to? Like, is she really shady? (laughs) You always have like a vibe that she's shady. Oh no, she's super shady. Oh no, she's straight up evil. Oh my God, when is everyone going to figure out that she's like (laughs) a crazy fucking monster? And yeah, and, and just the, and that final confrontation at the airlock door is so fascinating to watch because I was thinking about what we talked about last time about her superpower is emotional manipulation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the thing that she's good at beyond just cold calculated strategy and tactics is knowing exactly what to say at any particular moment to accomplish the goal that she wants to accomplish you know yeah. and so so you see it you know when she sort of plants that little seed with Abby where like I have to note to somebody who will be asked to witness later I have to sort of casually drop in like, oh, Jaha cut his remarks short. All right, I'm going to bounce. But now you're going to be thinking about that when the next thing happens, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm Yeah. And the way that she plays that one guard, the whole success of her plan coming together at the end is because that one guard in the front helping them pry the doors open that she manages to convince him, you know, by using the truth, she's telling the truth. Another sort of strength of this episode and and of this arc, I think, is that as totally like reprehensible and ruthless as Diana Sidney is, you know, I really like that they give us that little speech by her sort of henchman guy when when Kane goes to interrogate him. Because he's being really sincere when he says, yeah, I'm mad. My wife died in the culling. Now for nothing. And I know that not all of us are going to make it to the ground. And the people who are going first are you people. You know, it's like, it's you people who weren't the people who died in the culling, who are always the people who get everything first. So I, th- I thought it was really important. And I, and I like that they give us that perspective of here's why the people who follow Diana Sidney follow her is because they actually do have a lot of very justified anger. You know, the sort of like the caste system on the arc has always produced and run down these inequalities, kind of haves and haves and have nots. And that's been sort of like percolating in the background. But now we've reached a point where that caste system is being exploited to decide literally who gets to live and who's going to have to die. And so like, it makes a lot of sense, or whether or not that's like actually true, that's like certainly not Jaha's intention or Kane's or anything. But you can see how eminently reasonably someone like or easily someone like Diana Sidney could leverage that 
those resentments and that fear into getting people to follow her and to do, you know, these sort of terrible things to save themselves. In a way that, like, is, you know, it's very sort of Trump-like, you know, like, (laughs) there's some, like, bubbling resentment and the wrong person comes along Mm -hmm. and twists it into what would be maybe a legitimate resentment of some kind, or at least, like, real resentment, sort of twists it into something, metastasizes it into something really toxic. But I think it's really powerful in that sense, in kind of the way where, like, it's a little bit akin to the way that the Cages and Sing work as uh, villains in season two, where, like, Mm -hmm. what they're doing is absolutely reprehensible and wrong. You know, like, there's no excuse for what Mount Weather does to Grounders, but also it is totally believable and human and understandable. Like, you know why they're doing it. You know why the people who go along with it go along with it you know Mm -hmm. it's wrong it's evil but it's the kind of evil that makes psychological kind of emotional sense so I thought that worked really well in this episode kind of giving us like look Diana Sidney wants power and she has hinged it to the power of the anger of the kind of lower classes of the arc yeah and I I think it I think the yeah the Trump comparison I think remains a good one and I think it yeah comes even more to the fore in this episode because it's like she's using you know it's that faux populism thing it's like yeah she, her goal is power for herself. And right. the way that she has created a framework to achieve that is by this sort of elaborate psychological gamesmanship of the like, I'm one of you kind of messaging. You know, mm-hmm. like you and I are the same and we're overlooked by the Washington insiders, you know, the establishment elite, the, you know, Jaha and the council. And she delivers it so convincingly that they don't stop to analyze the fact that Diana Sidney is a council member. She is now, whatever her origins were, like whatever her upbringing or her station background or whatever might at one point have been, she is now in the upper elite of that caste system as a former and now current, again, former chancellor, now current council member. But she's convinced them that their goals remain the same. Mm-hmm. You know, in, yeah. in a similar way to somebody who comes from a blue collar background but then gets elected to Congress you're playing on those I'm one of you we're the same we have the same goals and it's like well no you're you're in the power structure now which means that your goal is to remain in the power structure and continue to ascend that ladder doing so on the backs of people whose support you need and so it's just so she's just it's yeah it's fascinating because it really and I, I, you know, I, and I miss that class stuff. Like I miss the way. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. In, in the first season. And I understand how, I understand how in a lot of ways on the ground, those storylines have become less relevant just because of the sort of merging together of all of these different groups into one sort of larger group. We got bits of it with Farm Station and I wish we'd had more. I think that could have been a yeah. really fascinating thing to tap out a little harder if one of the points of contention between Farm Station and Arcadia when they finally show up it had to do a little bit more explicitly with who they'd been in their previous lives on the arc when things yeah. were a little bit more sort of subdivided. But I definitely feel like, you know, you can see a lot of, you know, in our art characters, hints that remain embedded in their characters of who they were, of who their families were, of what their sort of social status was. But the thing that I like about season one, where we have them on the arc, and even the way the kids kind of subdivide themselves, you know, the caste system, gulf between Clark and Wells versus Bellamy and Octavia, you know. Yeah. But I like the way that it's sort of, I think it does such an astute job of addressing how that very regimented 
regimented sort of rigid social hierarchy shapes people into becoming who they become you know like Abby and Jaha behave like people and we talked about this last season when we were recapping like the first season one episodes Abby and Jaha behave like people who were raised in the upper echelons of society and kind of just expect that the rules will bend for them you know like they Mm -hmm. behave in relation to the exodus charter to the power structure to the laws of the land as though when they need an exception to the rules they will be able to just find one with no consequences and yeah. you know and somebody like Kane and then later Pike behave like blue collar kids who join the military to get out of poverty and are thus slavishly dedicated to following the law to the letter of the law yeah yeah and with the understanding that there are consequences when you step out of line and then when they're in the power structure like when they sort of reach that kind of upper echelon you know moving through the ranks of the military they have completely completely absorbed that mentality that there are consequences when you step out of line. Yeah. And so I think that, and Diana is such a product of that kind of mindset where she has this deeply intuitive understanding of how all the pieces fit together. She knows how to talk to Jaha in a way that Jaha will receive it, but she also knows how to talk to Kyla Ridley and all of these more sort of blue collar factory worker people in a way that they'll receive it. Like she just has this, I think a very sophisticated understanding of how the strata are kind of laid out where everyone else is just sort of like you're in this system and this system is just what you're used to you know like Jaha just sort of does what Jaha does and he's not doesn't have that kind of step outside of it and take the long view well Jaha often seems startled by the way that people react to things like he's Jaha is not particularly good at predicting people's responses to events or decisions probably because like Jaha doesn't really process things the way that a normal person does emotionally right (laughs) um you know because he because he he has this like compartmentalization superpower that most people don't have like Mm. he doesn't seem to be very good at anticipating the sort of like emotional personal fallout of these things and abby i think to a certain extent like occasionally that happens with abby like not for the same reason but sometimes just because you know she is so feels so clear most of the time especially in season one about you know what is right what is wrong what we Mm. should do what we shouldn't do you know so and, and then yeah so like they're just a little bit less able to kind of step outside of their own view of things whereas Mm -hmm. Diana you know like I don't know in kind of of that way where like you know sociopaths are really good chameleons because like they can just kind of Mm -hmm. they just see emotions as as things to be manipulated they don't really (laughs) she can just kind of look at it and go like all right, I need you to like feel this way so I'm just gonna like give you a little push Mm -hmm. in this direction and then off it goes you know like it's just a mechanism sort of untainted by actual empathy (laughs) yeah (laughs) I think that it's which is unusual because I I would say I mean I would say all all three of them I think Abby and Jaha and Kane have throughout the whole show they have moments where we see them stunned and sometimes plans really thrown awry by somebody behaving in a way that is different from how they would behave yeah you know like somebody does something that is so not what Kane would do or what Abby would do or what Jaha would do that they're entirely at a loss you know and I think you know and Clark is the same Bellamy is the same you know I think 
that it's it's really only some of our like more kind of Machiavellian villain characters you know like Dante I think has the same thing that Diana has like that ability yeah. to sort of read the room and make an assessment of what tactic is going to be the most effective tactic here based on how other people think and where that requires some sort of strategic manipulation but you know the characters in this show that we feel close to that we empathize with is because they have a strong point of view and the way that they think and make decisions and see the world is clear to us because they're so very like fully realized and so you know when Clark runs up against somebody who just won't do the thing that she needs them to do and she can't talk them into it because she doesn't have Diana's like elaborate psychological trickery we feel that frustration you know whereas Diana like you said (laughs) like Diana has no interest in being a good person or being a particular kind of person she's just like who do I need to be in this moment and what words do I like what mouth noises do I need to make in order to like get you to like do the thing I need you to do all right I'm gonna just stand here and say these things you know so yeah so she's just fascinating in that way and watching you know the sort of like ramp up of tension through the fucking hell of a cold open you know like oh yeah explosion and then cut the credits and you're like Jesus Christ Yeah, I think I what screamed. the fuck? I think the first time when I was watching this, like binging the first time, I think I screamed out loud at that. I was just like, "Holy shit!" Because it's like cute little girl telling the Unity Day story, and you're like, "Something is gonna happen. What's gonna happen?" Like you have this sort of creeping sense of unease. Yeah, but I did not expect a massive fucking explosion killing a bunch of children. <laughs> well, especially because like. What kind of crazy motherfucker sets off a bomb in a space station? You know? Like, you could blow a hole in the fuselage and everybody gets sucked out to space. There are fires. You're burning off and or tainting more of your very limited supplies of air. Like, she is already obviously in kind of like, fuck all y'all, I'm out of here mode. You know? Like, that is just insane. (laughs) Yeah. Watching them try to put the plan together it's like this is the action of somebody who isn't planning on being on this space station for very long exactly like this is a sort of borderline suicide bomber act like this is not somebody who's going to be sticking around and so you know either it's somebody who is causing chaos just to cause chaos and their goal was to die or you know this is somebody who thinks that they have a way off yes yeah and truly doesn't give a shit about anybody else. But because of how things like oxygen resources and these like tiny claustrophobic confined spaces, like the way the world works on the arc, because of how that's been laid out for us in the previous episodes, you know, a giant planned like man-made explosion in a public place is so like the last kind of thing that we would expect to see in this world that they've created where everything exists in these tight little confined boxes. Because like you said, it is, it's like a, a borderline suicidal plan. Yeah. You know, if like, yeah. if what, if you miscalculate one little thing about that bomb, the size of it, the trajectory of the shrapnel, whatever, you could kill everyone. You could kill yourself. Like it could. Yeah, be, you could it blow could up the whole entire ship. You could cripple this the arc to the point where you couldn't even launch the Exodus ship. Like this is crazy. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It's and it's this act of incredible, like borderline psychotic desperation, and, and so then the fact that her response to like okay it didn't work as planned. Here are two options. Neither of them are good, and that her like feeling is like. 
It should have been more crazy. Like, I should have yeah, a bigger bomb. It's like, <laughs> Jesus, Diana. Like, no, that is not the right answer, Diana. The answer no. is not build a bigger bomb. Like, what the no. fuck? It's like, what is wrong with this crazy bitch? I love her, but oh my God. <laughs> I love, I mean, love is the wrong word because it's so horrible, but I love everything about the whole before and after sequence of that bombing. I love the sort of juxtaposition of this kind of creeping sense of unease that we get that little dialogue between Diana and Abby, like you said, that kind of like pings your something is off here. Yeah. We of course know Diana's up to something that we don't know what or why. And then like the kids and their little pageant and the flags well, and of course that like the pageant comes after I think the beginning of the cold open is the kids down on the ground. Right, right. Watching the speech. And then Finn and Clark talking about Unity Day, you know, and they have, we have that little back and forth about, you know, Finn of course is like, Unity Day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, well, you know, like this is all a lie. The 12 stations blew the 13th station out of the sky. Like that's what Unity Day is. We're celebrating the 13th station being blown out of the sky, which of course now like takes on a whole other connotation since we know that yeah. that was Becca's, that was, you know, that was Becca's station. And it was about Allie. But, you know, so we get this little back and forth about like how, how Unity Day is actually sort of commemorating this sort of. In, in the way that, like, the 4th of July does. You know, it's like, it's, well, I guess yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. the signing of the Declaration of Independence. But it's, or I guess, like, maybe, like, Bastille Day. It's kind of like Bastille Day. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, this huge act of violence, which led to kind of a new order, which eventually became peaceable. So, with, like, this, it's set up in this conversation about, like, okay, well, you know, it people like it. It makes them happy. It's symbolic. You know, it's a time to sort of celebrate togetherness. And then, and Finn pointing out, like, okay, but there's something sinister behind that togetherness. Like, this is all predicated on this, like, act of violence, about killing a bunch of people, on, like, eliminating whatever threat the 13th station was. And then you go up to the Ark, and you have these little kids with their flags being like, you know, like, there were 12 stations, and they thought life would be better together, so they came together, and everything was great. And you're just kind of, like, in that, like, way that, like, the cognitive dissonance between, like, sentimentalized kids' versions of history versus real history are always a little bit unsettling. So, like, yeah, you already yeah, yeah. had that sort of, like, children are, like, talking through this really sanitized version of something that we were already told is, like, sort of predicated on this, like, huge battle, whatever. And then the conversation with Diana. And then, you know, so it's a kind of, like, growing and growing sense of, like, something is off. This togetherness is sort of like the pristine surface, but underneath the water, you know, there's like sharks. There's something sort of sinister going on. Yeah. And the more like it sort of pans in on like the cute little narrator girl being like, life's better together. You're like, something horrible is about to happen. What's it going to be? You know what I just realized, actually? I never thought about this. But if you think about like the Unity Day story, which is that, you know, the 12 stations came together by blowing the 13th out of the sky. And we know now that it's because they were like, the 13th station can't join the 12 because of because she wouldn't get rid of Allie and so they had to shoot her down. But even not knowing that context, so like the idea is like Unity Day is about the 12 stations coming together after sort of jettisoning this other whatever dissonant element. We get a kind of like twisted parallel bookend at the end with the Exodus ship ejecting from the arc. So like- yeah. Unity Days, this the stations come together 
And then at this on this Unity Day, they sort of split apart. So there's a kind of like the like the togetherness falls apart because you have Diana saying that she's going to be separate. Anyway, I never thought about that. Good job, writers. <laughs> you know what else it is I'm just now realizing? The other thing that it parallels in an equally sort of dark and horrible but beautifully laid out kind of way is the 12 clans coming together when Octavia kills Luna. Oh, yeah. Like Luna as the remaining, the only person left of the 13th clan. Yeah. If she had won the conclave, everybody would die. We think of Sky Crew as the 13th clan just because there was 12 before and they were the last one added. But in the context of the conclave and the bunker, the 13th clan is actually Flow Crew. That's a good point. Luna was the one who was sort of rejecting the kind yeah. of... Luna yeah. Luna was the like obstacle. She, yeah, know. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a very good point. Yeah, wow. she was the one who was saying, like, if I win, if I'm the person who takes this, you know, then, like, then destruction for all of you, you know? And so then you have, like, Roan and Ilian and Octavia and everyone, like, teaming up to destroy Luna and then Octavia killing mm. her at the end. And mm-hmm. so that then Octavia can be the person who brings the 12 clans together into one clan. It'll be interesting to yeah. see, you know, like when we flash back and flash forward in season five, I'm really interested in in sort of seeing what that process of creating one clan looks like. But it is not hard to imagine that the work Octavia has to do to create a you know unified peaceable society based out of all these sort of disparate groups is going to have to involve her you know something akin to an exodus charter like level of overly draconian punishment for people stepping out of line i'm interested in sort of seeing what her relationship to the kind of social systems that really punished her for existing on the arc like what it looks like for her to now be the person who's executing those things you know because yeah. i do feel like there are some interesting potential parallels between what we know of the sort of myth versus reality of the actual unification of the arc and you know what that might look like in the bunker so i don't know but but it does but it does feel to me like that is that's another nice little parallel of like the one has to be destroyed so the 12 come together and then what later is the story that you tell yourselves about how that happened and why that happened and how you sort of keep those reins well and you know what else so uh cadigan there were 12 steps sort of 12 groups yes the secret 13th so that's a kind of reversal too, because the 12, when the people who were sort of like following the rules and thought they were going to, you know, get to their whatever safe spot, um, they were the ones who wound up getting killed. And then the 13th station, the 13th bunker yeah. is the one that was actually the safe one. So Cadigan's bunker is kind of an inversion of what the pattern has been, which is that the one, the 13th gets jettisoned and the 12 kind of come together to survive. So it'll be interesting to see if they pick that up in season five. Yeah. And since, you know, the bunker crew in season five, they're in that 13th bunker, you know, so I wonder if that's sort of, if there's some maybe potential kind of foreshadowing there in terms of like things not going quite (laughs) as you would want them to in there. Yeah. And then another thing I thought of, this is now I'm thinking about this like 12 plus one instability, like the 13th is always the kind of unstable element thing in the show another place that you could say that kind of comes up in season three sky crew becomes the 13th clan in the alliance sky crew are also the people who bring in Allie. 
Yes. Oh, and also then after they join, sort of like, basically kind of because of Clark, Lexa dies, which is the dissolution of the tw- of the Alliance of the Twelve Clans. So there's right. like Twelve Clan Alliance that's sort of like roughly, sort of like shaky but stable at the time that we enter the show. You add the 13th element and the 13th element is what basically destroys it. Yeah. So that it crumbles. And in both, and it's like Sky Crew both through like Sky Crew itself joining and through Clark joining. And then later on, because like Allie gets her foothold back through Sky Crew and sort of takes over. I continue to wish that we had gotten more of sort of like the work that it takes for Lexa to hold the coalition together, which was more or less possible when they were facing like the common enemy of the mountain men. Yeah, they had the 13th group, which was the mountain men who were the enemy. Right. Yep. They relied around their common enemy, the 13th clan-ish sort of. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was basically manageable. But like the political cost to Lexa of attempting to fold Sky Crew into the Alliance and how that like made her hold over the clans more tenuous that she had to sort of resort to like, you know, more and more extreme measures to keep the clans from splintering because they didn't all want Sky Crew to be in the Alliance. Mm-hmm. And then of course, it is because of that and because of Clark specifically that Lexa dies, thus causing the whole Alliance to fracture. So yeah, so it is like, it is sort of a running theme I think throughout the show of like 12 is the stable isotope right like 12 yeah is yeah, like, yeah yeah you can manage 12 of something and then you know <laughs> you add a 13th thing and then you're just like oh well how is this all gonna go to hell but it is interesting and I hadn't thought about that that you're right that Cadigan is the one notable exception to that Cadigan is the one that inverts it yes that 1 through 12 die horribly in shitty ass bunkers <laughs> that like <laughs> just turn them into like radioactive soup So this is weird. This is a question that I have long had and I'm not sure if like I'm just stupid and not getting something or if it's something that's going to be like more explained later. I really want like actual Cadigan flashbacks, like post-apocalyptic Cadigan in the bunker flashbacks. But like, so they survived Prime Fire the first time in that bunker and then emerged, I guess, and, and lived and maybe like built up polis around it. The bunker looks sort of unoccupied when they moved in. You know, like there was like there was a farm, yeah. there were supplies. There weren't people still in there. Yeah, no, they didn't like find a bunch of bodies or anything. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the pattern of like 12, well, and also, okay, so the symbols around the Second Dawn logo inside of there are the clan logos. So right. I feel like the, the backstory has to be that Cadigan came out like the the clans are sort of founded on groups of people who were in the bunker and came back out, and that they sort of then spread from there. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then like Becca, you know, she came back down and she inoculated some number of them with night blood, or like she inoculated all of them with night blood, and it became a kind of like recessive gene thing that only right, right, manifests yeah. in some of them or Pops something. Up something from time to time, yeah, you know, whatever pseudoscience. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so I feel like that's got to be it. Now, what I yeah. really, really want that we'll never get, but what I would really want, like, I want, like, a flashback miniseries about Becca and Cadigan. Me like, too. You know, yes. like, what happened yes. when Becca came down and, like, she found Cadigan and his, like, cult people 
Yeah. And, like, I can't shake the feeling that Be- Cadigan was, like, not a good guy, you know? And, like, and Becca's yeah. a good person. Like, Becca fucked up massively, obviously, but, like, Becca's a really good person. So I feel like they would be, you know, like, there's, I feel like there's a really, really good story and Becca oh, coming yeah. back down and finding the Second Dawn people. And, like, how the Second Dawn stuff with, like, the clans, you know, the symbols for the clans that came from that and, like, this weird, this sort of, like, stratification stuff, like, how that stuff merged with the flame and Nightblood and Becca's, you know, and the Pilar stuff and her corporate slogan, you know, Chandy disappears. Yeah. Like, how these two things merged together to become this, sort of new religion which seems to be believed in by all the clans but not necessarily espoused by all of them you know what i mean like i don't know it's unclear anyway <laughs> yeah well and and then like and what's the thing that sets ice nation apart you know like that there yeah, seems to be something yeah. qualitatively different in their origin story i mean god if there was ever an excuse for like you know a cw like webisode miniseries i am desperate for Becca Cadigan flashbacks. Yeah. I'm convinced that he killed her. Yeah, I would buy that. I would buy that. He's definitely the first flame keeper and he like fucking murdered her. And, yes. yeah, you know, yeah. like stuck it in someone else. That he could control. Yeah, exactly. Until we get canon that says otherwise, that's what I'm going to go with. <laughs> Absolutely. This is my theory. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Anyway. That was, that was a fun detour. <laughs> Other arc things. Well, I do want to just take a moment to have some Vera Kane emotions. <laughs> uh, I just, my heart fucking breaks. That first scene with Kane. And it's like such a, you know, like Kane is so relatable in that moment where he's like, mom, I'm at work. Mom. Okay, mom. I get yeah, it. I yeah, know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But like, look, <laughs> like he's, you can see him sort of in that way that sometimes happens when you're with your parents, even when you're, you know, an adult, even now when I'm in my thirties, it still happens. Like, when you're with your parents, there's a part of you that just, like, reverts back to your childhood, like, your teenage self, yeah. you know? So you can <laughs> kind of see him going there, like, oh, mom, okay, I got, I, I, I don't even remember the prayer, okay? Leave me alone. I have a job to do. Yeah, yeah. Just kind of like, yeah. you're embarrassing me, mom. You know, he's kind of, yeah. like, having that sort of moment <laughs> and, and not even thinking about it, you know? Like, thinking, like, whatever, it's not a big deal. He can make it up to her later or whatever. And like, so it's so, so heartbreaking when, like, moments later... You know, like after that being their sort of last interaction. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just like, no. I know. Uh. It really gets at that deep primal fear that you have where you can never really be sure how much longer you have with people. You know, yeah. like, like everything in his interaction with her in that in that first little moment is built upon the assumption that they have infinite time. He's going to make it to the ground. She's going to make it to the ground. She can bring down the damn tree herself. You know, like, right. it's yeah. all going to be fine. He has more important things to worry about than a stupid tree. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like, she'll be on the third transport ship. She can take it down with her. This is a problem for future me. Like, I don't have to deal with this right now. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then five minutes later, you know, then she's like on the ground with like metal shrapnel sticking out of her stomach. And he, the moment where she's conscious until he says... The Traveler's Blessing, and then she, like, closes her eyes and can kind of, like, but that you know she hears him say it, you know, that he does remember the words. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just devastating to watch. This is one of the moments that I just really, like, first began to really love him. Like, the contrast between this Kane and the Kane that we meet in the pilot, who is sort of the Rasputin character, you know, like, the Jafar (laughs) of the arc, essentially. Right. You know, (laughs) 
<laughs> and allowing him to have this like devastating moment of humanity and that we really sit in it, you know, that like mm-hmm. every interaction that he has afterwards, they don't breeze past it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Abby like checks in with him about it and and you see yeah. like as his recklessness of his behavior sort of ramps up where you're like, yeah, this is a person who has like had a really fucked up day yeah (laughs) and he's really fucking furious and so he's like not having anyone to like everything kind of tracks from from yeah like diana sydney literally just murdered his mother you know like this is personal this is not only about like everyone's survival but it's also about like she fucking killed his mom with her bomb yeah you know yeah and for for jaha it's it's a little bit more like like jaha's motivation and this is very much like he needs that ship. You know, like when they're all gathered at the door trying to get inside, trying to stop Diana. For Jaha, it's about like that ship is needed so that he can be in charge of who is surviving and who lives and dies, you know? And it's mm-hmm. and it's more on that sort of dispassionate macro level. And for Kane, I just think that there's this sort of ramping up sense of like all the different little sort of subtle ways that his grief manifests in this episode feels like really nicely done and just beautifully performed by Ian. I really love that little moment when he and Abby are talking and and he says the injured are being taken care of and we can't do anything for the dead and and then he's kind of like you know harumph harumph I'm not having emotions like trying to sort of like (laughs) shove it back down shove it back down you know (laughs) and then she puts her you know her hand on his arm and says you know like I'm so sorry and Vera was an amazing spirit and just that little look on his face of like I can't have these emotions right now. Like, there's a job to do. Shit is going down. I'm, like, falling apart. And it's the first moment that we see either of them really reaching out to each other with, like, kindness, you know? Mm -hmm. And you can see that it, like, completely unstitches him. Where he's like, please don't be nice to me because I will cry and I'm at work. And I can't cry at work, you know? (laughs) I'm trying to, like, (laughs) hunt down a bomber. But it's just so, it's so beautiful and it's so devastating. And as a person who has lost a parent where you just feel like you're so aware at all times, like every interaction that you have with them could be the last interaction that you have with them. And, Mm -hmm. and you never, you never want to leave it like Marcus and Vera left it. You know, you never want the last thing that you say to your mother before she dies to be basically like, I don't have time for you. You know, yeah, yeah. Like I'm trivializing the thing that's important to you. I don't care about it in a way that's kind of like turning his back on like his family, his childhood. You know, like the the tree and the religion were like hardwired into his upbringing, and all she wants him to do is like, can you carry a tiny little tree in your lap? It's not that much to ask, Marcus. And he's just like, right, yeah, yeah. So watching that last night and thinking about this scene in season two where we watch him plant the tree is just Mm -hmm. like. (sighs) <sighs> yeah, it's just so emotional. And I hope, and I don't know if the writers will view this as important enough that it will actually be sort of ever made explicit and textual in canon, but I just really would love to believe that Kane took the tree with them into the bunker. You know, like that he went back and dug it up and that in the bunker over the course of six years that they're doing the little like water with a little water drop. Like I just want <laughs> the tree to be okay when they come out of the bunker. In my heart of hearts, my little headcanon, like whenever the series ends, wherever they like settle permanently, I just feel like having the Eden tree be there as this like came from the ground up to the sky. That This little tree has like followed Sky Crew. Yeah. You know, everywhere yeah. that they've ever lived. I just, I like the little symmetry of that. Then it's like Vera is with them. 
But it does make that, it makes that scene in season two where we see that he did the thing that she asked him to do, that he took the tree down with him, that he planted it for her. Just like so much more, ugh, so emotional. I know. So it's like such a, it's such a sweet little touch, you know, that he makes a point of honoring her. And like given how much is going on even in season two at that point, you know, that like that now he's like, okay, I'm going to take the time. You know, to do this yes, thing. Yes, exactly. To honor my yeah. mother, to remember her, like the last thing that she asked me to do. You know, like in all the chaos, like after after that bomb explodes and after the Exodus ships leaves, like it's a race to the finish for the people on the Ark. You know, like they mm-hmm. their time their clock is really ticking. And so, like if it, you know, if if you ever legitimately didn't have time or or even the ability, like you think about like what Kane goes through to get off that ship, getting stuck in various parts of it, whatever. If any, if ever he actually had like a legitimate excuse of like I couldn't get back to it and get it, you know, get it in time or wasn't the most important yeah. thing, it yeah. was then. But I think after she died, you know, there was no chance he wasn't going to make sure that he brought that tree down for his mother, you know. Yeah, exactly. It's just such a beautiful little humanizing moment for somebody who in the earlier episodes of the show seems like somebody that we're being set up to just dislike so intensely and find nothing about him that is warm or compassionate or you know empathetic. And I feel like really the first little running thread that we get of like, this is a person that I'm going to feel some kind of like emotional connection to is seeing him in the context of his mom, you know, like the moment where he's yeah. watching her die. Then later when we see him fulfilling this promise and like, it sort of adds some layers to it, you know, in much the same way that I think introducing Bellamy in the context of Octavia gives a lot of nuance early on to the ways in which you're just like okay like there are some kind of like stereotypical like asshole behaviors happening here (laughs) but then you also have this other side to you and so until everything is sort of like completely fully fleshed out and we understand all of why you do the things that you do that we do have this thing to hold on to where it's like I can't write this person off as like a shallow one-dimensional whatever because we see how deeply he cares about this one person who's like so yeah. deep in his life Ugh. so many feelings <laughs> so many feelings and then of course you know to transition down to the grand storyline the horrifying and soul-crushing end to the Diana Sydney schemery arc is that she successfully gets away with the Exodus ship that then we watch Clark and Bellamy watch explode in midair and Mm -hmm. we do not know I did not know when I first watched this I think I'm probably made you spoiler me so I wouldn't panic we actually don't know that Abby isn't on that ship like we don't have any (laughs) idea and then the whole next episode is all ground storyline so we don't check back in with the arc until one eleven, when Kane has to crawl through the vents to like rescue Abby. So like, it's a long time for us, the audience before we know that Abby isn't dead. And it's until three or four episodes into season two before Clark realizes that Abby isn't dead. Yeah. Clark doesn't know that Abby isn't dead until she gets out of Mount weather. Yeah, which I had forgotten until I watched this. I was like, oh my God, that's right. Like, she sees the ship explode, and she literally doesn't know until she and Anya come back to Camp Jaha, and, like, she actually sees her mom. Like, this whole time, she has had absolutely no way of knowing that her mom made it, because the communication was completely cut off. Mm-hmm. So watching, watching Eliza's little face crumple as she, like, 
drops to the ground watching the ship explode in the air i was just like oh god oh god oh god that's right i forgot you have like you have so long before you're gonna realize that your mom isn't dead like oh this poor baby (laughs) yeah i should have found i should have found the like emails or chat transcripts or whatever from when you're watching the first time because i do remember you like panicking like oh my god oh my god is abby dead like what what and i was like no yeah no she's not dead she's not dead it's fine yeah a couple episodes she'll (laughs) They'll find her, I promise. Losing my mind. I was like, no, Abby. Oh my God. Oh my God, Abby. Freaking the fuck out. It's a very good thing you did when you weren't watching season one live. No, oh my God. I would have lost it. I would have totally lost it so many times. Yeah. Yeah. I was very glad that I that I had you to reassure me. You're like, she makes it to the end of season two. It's gonna be okay. It's like, all right. It's like <sighs> okay. I promise, I promise <laughs> she isn't dead yet. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> but it is such a beautifully executed jump cut going from the way it transitions from the arc storyline to what's happening on the ground that then, you know, we're watching this explosion happen in the air and we have absolutely no idea like did they make it? Did the whole arc blow apart? Did anybody survive? Did anybody get off? What's happening? We have no idea. And so it just, the way that that dials up the stakes of how the whole ground storyline unfolds and the sort of headspace that it puts Clark in, like, no one's coming for you. There are no soldiers mm-hmm. showing up with guns. Mm-hmm. All of your plans for backup, like the cavalry's not coming. What are yep. you going to do? Yep. And how that yep. dials up how the next couple episodes unfold with the grounder stuff, I think is really, this is where it's sort of like, you are on your own. Yeah, you are alone. You can't talk. They can't talk to the Ark anymore. Yeah. Communications are out ever since the bomb went off and they don't come back until ever. They don't come back. Yep. They just, they can't communicate until they come to the ground. Yep. So they have, they have no idea. Like, all they know is that, like, a bunch of people die in that Exodus ship and they can't talk to the Ark and that's it. So yep. they've got some bullets and they've got some gunpowder and they've got some guns and they've got, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> it's like them versus the grounders. Yeah. Yep. So I guess we, that's a good transition to the ground storyline. Yes. So <laughs> Should I'm we talk so about excited. other things before I derail into my, my like epic fin rant? <laughs> I'm so, oh my God, I'm so excited. So let's see. So what? I guess let's just sort of do a like brief synopsis of what's happening in this storyline. I mean, it is almost entirely everything that's happening on the ground is tied into what becomes the great Finn fuck up of 2014. <laughs> but there, I mean, there are some, there are some nice little moments. There's, there's things I like in this ground storyline a lot. Oh yeah, no. I mean, I love this episode and I like the yeah, storyline. Yeah. I just, you know, I just also like to yell about how terrible Finn is in this oh, episode yeah. and why he's such a dumbass and so wrong. But anyway. He really, really is, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, there's a lot of great stuff. I mean, I think, you know, now, of course, after season four, everything involving Jasper is heartbreaking, but there's a lot of really I good know. Jasper content in there's this such episode. such good Jasper, yeah. Even starting with him coming out of that tent, you know, like holding a jug full of moonshine over his yeah. head. <laughs> Then Monty, like, those guys must be, like, fucking geniuses to have worked out working still. Also, what are they fermenting? Like, do they, they don't have grain. What are they, yeah. do they have sugar? Do they find berries? Like, it's unclear what they're fermenting yeah. into. I know. Where there is a will, there is a way. And, you know, clearly Monty and Jasper are teenagers <laughs> who like to alter their states of consciousness. So, I guess you shouldn't be surprised. <laughs> uh, I also really love that little, the Jasper and Raven 
in the town. Yeah. You know, like I love yeah. anytime we get to see Jasper contributing to the team in a meaningful way that like only he can do based on his own skills. You know, like Raven is a terrific mechanic, but Jasper's like, this is a job for a chemist. Like, you know, like yeah. he can smell the gunpowder and tell that it's off, you know, while she's like mm-hmm. accidentally burning her hand. And so just that little, and watching, watching that little moment, of course, in the context of season three and everything leading up to Nevermore and, you know, Jasper being the one to like, saving Raven from Allie and their, you know, the way their sort of their relationship kind of ends up becoming really important in season three, that connection between the two of them. I was just like, okay, well, this is really devastating and horrible now. Just sort of see like how, <laughs> how pure and, and well-intentioned that little sweet little moment where he's just like, oh, I'm going to help. He's like contributing to the team, you know, like he's like, yeah. getting to be useful. You know, I think yeah. it's really. Well, and also plot important because he's the one who then, you know, can figure out how to make more or how, how to deal with the gunpowder. Yes, now that they're cut exactly, off from the yeah. arc, they can't count on guards coming down with more bullets and they have to figure out how mm-hmm. to, you know, deal with what they have. He's the one who can kind of save their butts on the kind of yeah. like raw material part. But it's also really, you know, it's like sort of now post season four release also devastating to hear Jasper talk about his parents, which this might be the only time he talks about yeah. his parents. Yeah, that that pinged me too. That like that there are there are two of them. They are both alive. He seems mm-hmm. close to them, mm-hmm. and so I just I kept wondering, are they? I mean, I'm assuming meant to have died in the crash or didn't make it to Earth or were on another one of the stations because they were never yeah. mentioned again. Presumably, they must have been farm station because he and Monty grew up together. So. So maybe they were, you know, in the farm station group that didn't make it. I don't know. Well, but the when they go to look for farm station, the people that they talk about as being from farm station are Miller's boyfriend and Monty's family. And they don't mention Jasper's That's true. family. So maybe Jasper's... Yeah. Or or maybe it could just be... Maybe the writers just forgot, you know, or or we're like, yeah, yeah. okay, we're, <laughs> we're, we're focusing on Monty's family now and not Jasper's. That's true. But yeah, but yeah. that was very, there was a lot of little things like that that I had forgotten because I haven't seen this one in a long time. And I was like, oh God, Jasper has parents. Now everything hurts even more. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and like, he's so cute when he's drunk. Although this is another one of those moments where I was like, Bellamy is giving drunk Jasper a gun and being like, hey, let's go defend Clark from some grounders. Really the best idea. Like, I love you, buddy. But I think yeah. that might rank as one of your worst decisions <laughs> yeah where where's your older brother's spidey senses when you really need them i guess i mean maybe he left miller behind because somebody has to be in charge while he and clark are gone so that makes sense yeah. but like surely you have a more reliable person that you've deputized for the guard than drunk jasper <laughs> i know oh my god yeah i mean i know that you like that he clonked uh lincoln over the head but that just that seems like a decision that bellamy made out of his heart rather than his head yeah, it's like, I want to give the little guy a chance. <laughs> right, it's like, that's sweet, but not really the right time for it. Yeah, yeah. poor poor tactics, I know. Poor, yeah, like, not not the best decision. Good idea to bring Raven. You know, Raven's yeah. always an excellent person to bring along. But um, maybe next time, not so much Jasper. Yeah. <laughs> Do you, uh, question for you, because I, I, now, I now can't not think about this when I watch season one episodes. Do you think that at this point in the season there was still an attempt to make Jasper Octavia a something. I think so. Although this might be the point when they were killing it for good. Yeah. You know, because I think it definitely, definitely was in the early in season one. But like having, and they, and they do, they do deliberately have, like they do like pointedly have Jasper react 
to seeing Octavia and Lincoln, you know, like embrace on the bridge. But they never, like, from that point forward, they never write it in any way. There's never any hint that it's meant to be a love love triangle. You know, there's, like, never any sort of hint that, like, this is about sort of Jasper and Lincoln competing for Octavia's heart. Octavia is with Lincoln. So I think this might be the, this might be the way that they kind of, like, decisively put an end to the Jasper Octavia stuff, which they had kind of set up earlier in the season. Yeah, I only I wondered only because there were a few moments when he yells at Clark to run at the end and therefore sort of like ruins everything. Part of it was like, is this when he sees the grounders in the trees, you know, like when he spots, you know, the Anya also brought back up. Like part of me was like, is is part of what this is setting up that Jasper's fear and mistrust of the grounders is in some way connected to like he thinks that Lincoln played them. You know, is there some sort of like, I don't know. Like I was, I was just like, well, it read to me more like, it read to me more like Jasper's general sort of fear and paranoia about. Yeah. 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 It wasn't specifically about Lincoln. Yeah. And I mostly got that too. I was just sort of, yeah, I was, I was kind of trying to figure out like, are there more, more looking like, are they still trying to draw these lines or is this where it's sort of pulling back in into um yeah sort of a more generalized I think it's I think it's where it's I, pulling back yeah yeah I agree with you yeah um there's like vestiges but I, I feel like this is where it kind of it fizzles out you know they sort of let yeah. it go and it doesn't become it doesn't remain an issue or like a sort of live storyline yeah yeah it doesn't come out after this yeah 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 uh I love Jasper. It's a good, it is a good Jasper episode. It is a good Jasper episode. There's also like, I mean, the beginning part of this episode, the whole sort of Unity Day celebration on the ground thing is just adorable. Like Clark doing drinking games is like the cutest thing ever. Like I love that scene. Like she looks so like pleased with herself. Yes, with a little like balancing the little thing on her nose. Yeah, and and then and Fox is there, which made me super yeah, emotional. Which I, I totally know. forgotten that like oh, her drinking game buddy was Fox, and I was like, yep. son of a bitch. Now I'm unhappy again. <laughs> yeah, yep. but like it, like she's like looks really pre- pleased with herself, and but in a very Clark way, where you can tell she's yes. like, I'm gonna be the best at drinking. You know, exactly. <laughs> like, I know. like she can't even. She doesn't even have any chill when she's like supposed to be chilling out. <laughs> And then, of course, like, the the Bellark Unity Day flirting is one of my favorite Bellark scenes ever. It's very Just, precious. Yeah. It's very, like, it's so sweet. And, like, I think that's one of the first, you know, scenes we really get of, which makes sense because this is, like, right after, you know, Day Trip, which is where they really kind of bonded. It's, like, the first little scene we get where you kind of, where they sort of establish, they're, like, they're partners now. Like, they're friends now. The party's going on. Like, she's sort of doing the rounds. He's on guard. She's you know, coming to find him, checking in. He has to sort of convince her to go let loose. Yeah, like it's just such a cute little scene. It's, yeah, it's very sweet. And and it's also, I think it it does a really lovely job of seeing them being able to be drunk and cute and fun with each other. Like, and not just the two yeah. of them together, but like all, like all the kids yeah. getting to be like being drunk kids, and silly. you know? Being kids, yeah. It's this nice little reminder, you know, like they're all teenagers. And, you know, and Bellamy's point of, you know, the grownups are coming in two days and then the party's over. So go be drunk and stupid, you know, like, well, you can. Like, gather ye rosebuds, <laughs> et cetera. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, I, and I like when we get those little 
reminders that these are that they're teenagers me as an adult watching the show i'm just like oh my god can the ship full of grown-ups who know what they're doing just like land and like take care of everything you know <laughs> and that the perspective of the 17 year olds is like oh man grown-ups you know like it's just so <laughs> like like it's so it's it's a very believable little moment you know like they're celebrating not just unity day which is a day that they're used to like this sort of party day you know yeah in yeah their, in their culture but it's also just sort of like this is kind of our last chance to be like drunk and stupid um yeah well i think for clark also like bellamy's point is not for Clark, I think, is not quite so much like you get to, you know, like, grown-ups are coming, no more party, because that's not Clark. It's more like right, right, yeah. your mom is coming and you're going to have to deal with your shit. You know, like, all that shit we yes. just talked about the other day under the tree mm-hmm. that's, like, that you've been avoiding, you are going to have to stop avoiding soon, so you might as well go, like, cut loose exactly. before, like, all of your shit comes home to roost, you know? And same thing for him. And and also, the, like, this are the elements of, you know, like, the you deserve a drink, you deserve a drink. Like, sort of this acknowledgement of, like, yeah. we've been, like, busting our asses and everything yeah. has been horrible. And yeah. so, like, you know, like, take five minutes to sort of, like, chill. And it does sort of get to that, like, you know, this is a great example of that sort of just excruciatingly terrible to watch recurring season pattern where the second Clark actually does be like, yeah, I'm going to go do something just for me. Like, yeah, I'm going to go have fun for five minutes. And then something horrible happens. Yeah, exactly. She's like, maybe I'll let my guard down. It'll be okay. This out. Nope. Not okay. Not okay. Can't let my guard down for a second. (laughs) The universe is like, oh, that's cute. No. Um, I had also, I had forgotten that this is the episode, like, already this is the episode where, uh, Octavia runs off to bang Lincoln in his cave. Yes. In a way that makes it very clear that this is, like, a regular occurrence. Like, this is not the first time this is something that's been going on for a while. And I'd also totally forgotten. If I ever even, like, I don't even think it, like, ever registered with me in a way where like it seemed important to remember but when she gets you know when she sneaks into his cave you know she she runs up and she sort of she attacks him from behind you know with a couple of knives Mm -hmm. and she's like how is that And he's like better we'll make a warrior of you yet which had never like yeah never really sort of registered at all until now and i'm like until now it's like oh shit like he was you know like octavia the warrior was like started the moment that she and Lincoln got together. You know, like this is this whole thing yeah. is just has its roots totally in her uh, relationship to Lincoln, which I think kind of, you know, like being reminded of that detail, I think kind of adds something for me back into Octavia's storyline in season four, certainly in season three. Um, not just, you know, season two, obviously, but then also like later on, like the way that like these things. All these things, being a warrior, you know, kind of being a grounder, being with Lincoln are all tied together so inextricably for her. Yeah, I had I had the same reaction. I had also totally forgotten that long before Indra comes into the picture, Octavia wants to be trained as a warrior. Like Octavia wants to learn to fight. It's it is it's interesting to me. I think there's there's interesting things to mind, some of which I think we do get later made textual and some of which don't. But thinking about Octavia as she is now in relation to the rest of the delinquents and how they treat her, she doesn't really have a purpose or a role or a skill the way some of the others have. You know, the way... Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Like, Monty and Jasper's and Raven's utility based on their skill set 
is unquestioned. And yeah. Finn and Bellamy have this position as Clark's kind of advisory council that is also unquestioned. And Octavia is sort of adrift. And so I think the idea that learning to fight, that even as a person who doesn't want there to be war and doesn't believe in violence being the solution to everything because that remains the root of a lot of her problems with her brother um that her desire to learn how to fight that it becomes part of her sort of sense of who she wants to be this early on was something that I had forgotten because in my in my head I really sort of mentally associate that that shift as being really tied to Indra you know, like I, yeah. I think of it as something that really becomes, you know, a defining thread for her in season two. And I think in, I think in this, I think with Lincoln, this sort of season one fighter Octavia feels potentially like a lot of what it is, is him like essentially teaching her self-defense, like not necessarily yeah. like I'm going to turn you into a conclave winning grounder warrior, but more like. I care about you. I want you to learn how to be safe because my people are really dangerous. So let me teach you how they fight so you can protect yourself against them as opposed to sort of turning her into one of them. And that maybe that's the shift that kind of comes into play with Indra is her desire to be a grounder as opposed to Lincoln, the grounder outsider, helping her stay safe from grounders. You know, Mm -hmm, does that make sense? mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That makes Um, sense. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, but I also forgot. And I was like, oh, that's right. We get a, this is our first Linktavia sex scene. They've known each other for like one episode. <laughs> <laughs> right. But that's yeah. fine. Yeah. <laughs> he literally just like found out that he could talk yesterday, basically, or whatever, yeah. like previous episode. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's a, the sort of like speed with which that relationship happens it remains a little bit like, oh, okay. Yeah. I'm just. It's fine later. Yeah. <laughs> Turns I, out okay for a while. <laughs> yeah. I, I will say one of the moments of, I think, lost Finn potential, not to like, you know, if we're not there yet, to fast forward straight to Finn Fest, but, but one of the things <laughs> that, I, that, I, that I want to like about this episode that I wish Finn had handled differently is I think that they're actually, this episode gives us a little taste of, of, what could be really fascinating relationship potential between Finn and Lincoln as the kind of pacifist bridge builders. You know, like I think if Finn, Mm -hmm. Finn handling his shit differently and being less motivated by (laughs) fuck you Bellamy um, or, or by trying to sort of score points off of Clark, but like they had like the, the little moments they have where like, you know, like, him being the person brokering peace from his end, being the person who's the one going against the grain, and Lincoln being the same, you know, I think for Anya, there's a potentially fascinating little hint of what could be a relationship there that then ends up not becoming, it does not going anywhere, you know, just because of Yeah, it just like how, disappears. Yeah, because of how the whole thing, you know, just devolves into, into ridiculousness. Well, because the show never had any interest in Finn's relationships with anyone other than Clark and Raven. Like, he basically has no relationship with anyone else. He barely has interactions with anyone else after the first few episodes. And, like, one of the things, like, so I might as well get started on, on ranting about yeah. Finn. So, um, Let's do it! <laughs> so I will say, I will say my sort of, like, caveats, which don't amount really to, I don't know. I mean, like, it's the nicest things I guess I could say about, about Finn, but it's still not very nice, probably. Anyway. I think like Finn's motivation here is obviously right. You know, like Finn is Finn is definitely correct that 
this is a this is a kind of like key pivotal moment where things can either kind of continue down the path of violence towards war, which is where everyone assumes they're going, or potentially this might this this is the moment where you have a chance to do something to prevent that. So like Finn is definitely right to you know to sort of question like okay, but is war really inevitable? Maybe there's a way to avoid that. Maybe if we don't act like it's inevitable, then it might be possible to avoid that. So like, so I don't have a problem with that level of motivation. I think that's, or that, that sort of Finn is the character who has that kind of like foil. Hey, what if we didn't just assume we're going to war thing? Like that, that's fine. I think that maybe the problem is like, there's a, there's a few different things happening simultaneously with Finn as a character that kind of wind up screwing up the way that he functions as that kind of like, Hey, what about peace foil? And, um, and I think it has to do with basically like, I feel like this is, there's a, they sort of mid season, they decided they wanted Finn to be the kind of like pacifist foil to Bellamy. Right. Um, and that isn't something that Finn started out doing. So he started out as the kind of like scampish, you know, like loner rebel. He sneaks off in the night on his own little trips when he's not supposed to and he finds bunkers mm. full of cool stuff and he doesn't want to share it with Clark. And so like Finn, the, the, the things that sort of characterize Finn, you know, for, for the first half of the season are basically his relationship with Clark, the revelation of his relationship with Raven and the fact that he's always kind of on the fringes, you know, he's like around, you know, he's like with the kind of group contributing his um, opinions at the beginning but he's never really part of the leadership. You never really see him. He, he doesn't have any relationships with any of the other grounders. There's no indication that he knows who they are. You know, he's not helping build the wall. He's right. not doing anything really to help anyone else. He's like fucking around in the woods. And then occasionally when somebody needs him to track, they'll like talk him into helping them track, you know? And the rest of the day, and then he gets stabbed. And then he's like with Raven. And he helps out a little bit with, uh, you know, during day trip. But he's kind of like on the fringes. He's a sort of like, he's a kind of a little bit of like an outsider like the guy in the class and, you know, shows, shows up 15 minutes late with Starbucks right. and criticizes everyone else's plans, which is one annoying yeah. thing about him. But like, so, you know, so that's fine. That's fine as a character. But then like midseason, I feel like they decided that they wanted him also to be the sort of pacifist foil to Bellamy in the way that Wells had sort of started out. Yeah, that's I. It feels like they start to shove him into like if Wells was here, this is what Wells would say. Yeah, we need somebody to deliver this perspective, so we're gonna sort of graft that onto Finn, where that hasn't in any way necessarily been. That's not his like spacewalker persona he's introduced with. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. And so I think part of the problem is that. Those two, they, you know, they can't just like suddenly change him into a different person, you know, like they can't just like start writing him as well. So he, you know, they keep sort of elements of his like wild card. He's going to do what he's going to do. Kind of like he does what he thinks is right kind of persona with the other stuff. And I think those two things sit very uneasily. They don't really like the sort of the, the, the one persona kind of winds up undermining the other. And, and in some ways where I think it's sort of some ways that it just, there are elements about Finn that really, to me, seem to kind of under, undermine his, like, sincerity. Um, like, not that I think that he, like, is is false, that he, like, that he doesn't think that, you know, not fighting a war isn't a good idea. 
so anyway, so the so so I think like a lot of this is coming out of some um the sort of attempts to like find Finn as a character outside of the, his role as the one spoke in this love triangle that Clark is still caught in. Oh, and then of course the love triangle thing also interferes with all of this. So um on the one like yes like it's not a bad idea at all like I think it's like it is in in the abstract or you know it's like probably an excellent idea for someone to be like hey, before we fight a war, what if we talk to people? Um, But like everything about the way that Finn goes about it, I think is just a fucking disaster in the worst possible way. And and it's like in a really infuriating way. So like, like for instance, you know, and, and and in this way where it's sort of like people keep commenting on what's wrong with his approach, but he just sort of like barrels ahead. So the thing that like drives me most crazy about this is the way that... He attempts to manipulate and he does kind of like tromp over and and just basically ignore Clark's choice in this. In that, you know, he follows, he like stalks Linktavia, or excuse me, he, he, well, he does stalk Linktavia, but he stalks mm-hmm. Link, uh, Octavia to the cave. And then he comes in and then he has that conversation, you know, with Lincoln. Lincoln points out at that point, he's like, I don't have the authority to call a truce. So, like, here's the core problem. Finn is like, I have a good idea. We should just have peace. I'm going to go find the grounder and say, hey, why don't we have peace? Finn has just sort of decided, like, Finn is not, he has no sort of cognizance or he doesn't even, like, seem to occur to him at all. Like, that he himself, he does not have the right or the authority by fiat to decide for Clark or his group. He's not a leader. He's not Clark. He's not Bellamy. Like, he's kind of like Clark... Uh, Clark consults him, but he right. doesn't appear to have any kind of recognized position of leadership among the rest of the delinquents at all. Like, he's usually just kind of not around. He's either, like, right. fucking around in the forest or he's unconscious in Raven's tent, you know? So he has, like, basically he has no he has no role within his own group of authority. He certainly has no right to countermand or, you know, to override Clark's authority either for the, over the group or himself. Um, and he also just, like, kind of loses track of, like, like, hey, you're a grounder, Lincoln. Why don't we have why don't we have peace? And Lincoln's like, I fucking live in a cave alone. Like, right, right. What do you think I'm gonna do? Just be like, hey guys, no war now, you know? So like, so that drives me crazy on the sort of level of <laughs> this might be a little unfair, but like it it sort of it just like drives me crazy in that like that infuriating like sort of Trumpish way of being like, well, you know, obviously peace is the best thing. So the only reason that we haven't had peace before isn't because it's hard and it requires getting a lot of people with different priorities to agree with each other. It's because like nobody ever thought of it before. So like, I don't want to know anything about like my group of people and how we govern ourselves or that group of people and how they govern themselves or how we have taught or like the ways that we come together to talk to each other or the forms of conversation that we might have. Like that's all just stupid. I'm just going to swan in because I believe that I don't need to know anything special to do this and just be like, hey guys, how about peace? And they're going to be like, you're the best negotiator I've ever met. So it's just like, it's just so fucking, so it's just like, it's just like infuriating, like, again, like fucking sophomore in college, smart ass, Dumbass, you know, like, college boy thing of being, like, I've thought about this for five seconds. It, I, you know, like, I don't see why it must, like, there must not be anything else to know about this subject because I thought about it for a minute and I came to this conclusion. It's just like, fuck right. you. <laughs> well, and it, and it does, I think, you know, and I, I, I can't imagine 
that this was intended. But I think you, it is hard to separate that specific attitude from the fact that Clark is a woman. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, as a woman, and again, like, I know that they did not mean to make him into this kind of like fedora bro, you know, but like. <laughs> When you are a woman in the world doing the things that Clark is doing where you are like busting your ass to try to navigate a complicated solution and some dumb fucking bro is like, why are you working so hard? This is super easy. Look, I have an idea. Oops, I fucked everything up. Well, but it's hard, so it's not my fault. And you're just like, Clark like Clark was doing the best that she could. If it had been this easy, Clark would have thought of it before. Right. To keep with the, this is a thing that feels very, uh, probably unintentionally, but feels very like a gender issue, you know, is that it's not just that like when he's talking to Lincoln, he doesn't think about it. And Lincoln has to be like, dude, we don't have this, this authority, you know, like you got to go get your leader. I'll get my leader. And then they talk to each other. Finn comes back and when he finds Clark, first he says, you got to come with me. And she says, why? And he says, I'll tell you, know, I can't tell you yet or I'll tell you later. Um, so first of all, he tries to get her to go to a high stakes negotiation with an a hostile enemy without fucking telling her even where she's going. Like he tries to get her to go without telling her a thing. Then she says, no, you have to tell me. He grabs her arm. She says, don't touch me, which is like the whole scene is just like so goddamn uncomfortable. He's like pulling her away alone where she doesn't want to be. He's trying to get her to go with him someplace without telling her. He's like grabbing her bodily, like grabbing her arm and trying to like physically pull her with him with, you know, without her permission. She says, no, um, and then he says, and then he reveals that without ever telling her or consulting her, he went to Lincoln and he, he like said, we should have, um, you know, peace negotiations. And not only that, without ever once consulting with her or asking her or talking to her at all, he agreed that she would show up. He never asked her. Like he never talked to her about it. He's just like, oh yeah, Clark will be there. The reason why this Finn in this episode drives me the most crazy is because not only is that like a really shitty thing to do personally, you know, like it's shitty to do to her. The fact that he's trying to like, you know, trying to get her to go with him to a dangerous situation without telling her where she's going, you know, or trying to get her to go someplace with him without telling her at all, you know, like bothering her when she doesn't want to talk to him. That that he sort of promised that she would do something with ever, without ever consulting her or seeing if she's okay with it. Like that's all, all stuff that would be bad enough like in any situation but then on top of it like it's not that he just was like he was talking to some other group of kids on the other side of the like party and he was like yeah Clark will come over and do this thing and you know like it's like he promised that she would go negotiate with their enemy under circumstances and uh with restrictions that she not only didn't agree to but never had an opportunity to agree right. to or or to negotiate or to say like is there a better way to do this or to offer her own suggestions who was just sort of like i have made a plan right. you just show up and execute my plan and it's like well no wait a minute <laughs> it's like you don't have the you you don't have the right to do that yeah. you don't have the right to do to, you know to make that decision for clark as a person, as like someone who's ostensibly your friend, you don't have the right to make that decision for the person who is the leader of your people, the representative, uh, you know, who's supposed to be, you know, plus it's just like stupid. Like, how do you think your peace negotiations are going to go well when the person who has to do the negotiating doesn't have a say in the fact that it's happening at all? Yeah. You know, like, like what would have happened if he had gotten his way and she just showed up and he was like, okay, here's a grounder. And she's like, what the fuck am I supposed to do? You didn't tell me anything. 
And he's like, oh, uh, um, well, they said that we weren't supposed to bring weapons, but oops, I guess they did. You know, which is the other, like, that's the other thing that drives me fucking crazy. But like, this is why, this is why, this is why Trump administration, you can't hire people to do these kinds of jobs. You have no idea what the fuck they're doing. Because anyone who had any idea, any idea how diplomacy works, like even like a passing knowledge, which is basically what I have of like the kinds of like... The sorts of things you need to anticipate and understand and plan for in this kind of confrontation is that, like, you're going to show up with backup. Right. No one shows up to this without backup. Like, what kind of naive idiot are you that you're, like, sort of like, oh, well, you know, when I was talking to Lincoln, and, like, and and Finn did not talk to Anya. It's not like he went to Anya and Anya agreed to this. He talked to Lincoln, who right. already said, I don't have the right to make any of these decisions. And I guess, like, and, like, as far as we know, the, the conversation we saw in the cave was the conversation, like... We don't know if there was a conversation beyond that, but they never said anything about weapons there. So, like, I guess either implicitly maybe, maybe at some point when they were like, okay, I'll go get your person, I'll get my person, maybe Finn was like, okay, and, and we'll just bring our people and no weapons. And Lincoln's like, I, yeah, sure, I guess. That is not, none of the, like, that is not how this works, you know? And, like, you can't agree for Clark to show up without any defense. Right. You can't make the promise that she'll do that. You can't make the promise to Clark that the other side is going to agree to those terms because you never spoke to them. Yeah. You have no idea. You just like fucked off back to camp and were like, oh, this is going to work at work now. You know, because like you got it in your head that you wanted this thing to happen and didn't think about how you should do it. Well, and 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 not recognizing the fact that it actually amounts to a pretty hefty concession for Anya that she had her backup in the trees, but didn't bring a whole army trooping across the bridge with her to intimidate Clark. It's like, that's like Seriously. the most you can, you could realistically expect from Anya in that moment is what she did, which is that she got off her horse and like walked, you know, across the bridge single-handedly to meet Clark and didn't bring like an entire grounder militia with her in or you know, and didn't, kill right. Clark on sight. It's like, that was the best you were going to get from Anya, and you were fucking an idiot if you actually thought that Anya and her two guys on their horses were going to be all that there was. Right, and also, and it's also, and it's like, you don't realize, okay, like, again, I'm not, you know, like, I'm a fucking English professor. <laughs> I have never taken a political science class in my life. This is just, like, stuff that I've learned from being alive for 35 years. <laughs> like... When you have two leaders of two groups of people who are on the brink of war, mm -hmm. you don't just show up one day and have a chat. You have long drawn out negotiations about where you're going to meet mm -hmm. and when, who gets to bring whom with you, yeah. how many people, what kinds of weapons, where are they going to be placed, where do they leave their weapons, between, you know, exactly in the middle of your territories, but, you know, each side is going to be jockeying for um, a more advantageous location. Like, you don't, like, you have to negotiate each little piece of this leading up mm -hmm. to it. He did not do that. He was just like, I don't think anyone should bring weapons. So obviously no one's going to bring weapons. Oops, whoops, fuck. Anya did because that's what's the smart thing to do. And Clark did because that's the smart thing to do. Except for Clark had to do it in secret because I'm a dumbass. Yeah. So of course it goes wrong. Like, I just, Ugh. it makes me crazy. Yeah. You know, like, I get like, yes, peace is a good idea. But being like, hey, I'm going to single-handedly, like, attempt to force everyone around me into doing what I want, which is peace, is a fucking stupid idea. Well, and it won't work. And it's unfair and disrespectful to Clark. Yeah. <laughs> well, and this is why, so, like, getting back to, like, what you were saying before about why everything in this sort of, like, pacifist Finn personification feels 
in some way kind of inherently insincere. I think this is like my my fundamental problem with this iteration of Finn and it starts here and it and it continues on through the like, you know, just even through season two Finn is Finn's motivation here. And I think even the first time I watched this, I remember feeling like this. It feels so transparently more about Clark than about peace. You know, like what he is trying to do yeah. here is he is trying to be right. He is trying to be more yeah. right than Bellamy. He is trying to figure out how to stop a war with the grounders before it starts, which is a noble goal. But the reason that he's doing it is so he can be the guy who had the plan that worked over Bellamy. And so he wants it to happen without guns. So Bellamy is wrong. And he wants to be the person who secretly, you know, executed this all on his own and have Clark be like dazzled and amazed at how good he is at this. So he can be like, it's all, it's all this weird, twisted dick measuring contest where he wants, he wants everything to work out. Like he wants everything to line up the way he wants it. He wants to have Clark and he doesn't want to have to deal with an awkward thing with Raven. He doesn't want it. He doesn't want to have to do the uncomfortable thing of breaking up with her, but he does also doesn't want to like do the right thing and not breaking up with her, which is like not continuing to, you know, attempt to get Clark to have a relationship with him that she's openly uncomfortable with. Yeah. And, and we see like, and, and even in this episode, we see the way that he treats Raven in this episode is not yeah. conducive to, any kind of, you know, like it, it is, it's so, it's so disrespectful to how she has been helping take care of him, you know, since he was injured. That first he's ragging on her for being a person who's helping make bullets when she's like, I don't want us to die, you know. And right. she's like, there are people out there trying to kill us. Yeah. The most obvious and like best solution available to us right now is for us to have bullets to shoot from guns so that's what right. i'm gonna and do i'm gonna yeah so this is a job that i'm taking on you know and and then the fact that he goes off with clark on you know on this like stealth mission which he knows that raven will find out about you know where like the barest minimum of courtesy would seem to indicate that given the situation that they're in any amount of time that he spends off doing things alone with Clark is going to make Raven feel terrible. It sort of inescapably feels like a way for him to get Clark alone with yeah. him. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's what the thing, like, that's the thing that makes me crazy is all of this feels like it's about re, like establishing or reestablishing a bond with Clark where he's the special one over Bellamy, even if he doesn't necessarily want to date her to the exclusion of Raven because it's all like you said it's all kind of having his cake and eating it too and he hasn't picked Elaine yet but he's still he is deeply deeply attached to this vision of himself as the person that Clark counts on the most and and I would argue that like actually Clark's relationship with Raven also threatens that you know like Finn Finn does not bring a set of concrete skills to the table the way Raven does and he does not have the like established bond of co-leadership with Clark that Bellamy does and you know and, he, and even like Jasper and Monty again like people that have skills that she needs you know he is like he brings nothing to the table he is like desperately trying to but like he needs for his own like emotional you know whatever to be her number one person. And so he concocts this whole 
elaborate plan that he then ropes her into that just feels so transparently a ploy that is like you can't I think I think you can't separate any of what he does in this episode from this love quadrangle with Raven on one side and his jealousy of Bellamy on the other side and his sort of like pathetic desperate attempts to keep himself as Clark's right-hand person even though he knows that she's no longer romantically attainable because she has made her own boundaries clear. And even though he knows that he's not her partner in leadership because that position has been taken by Bellamy, the level of sort of manipulation and of removal of her agency and of like, you know, like it it feels like it has that kind of like manipulative nice guy thing to it you yeah know? Like, exactly like it's the it's yeah. one of the few instances in the whole show and i and again and i don't think any of this was intentional but it's one of the few instances where the horrible behavior of a character actually does feel in some way gendered and this show is really yeah. really careful yeah. and does an actually a remarkably astute job throughout with all the characters of of by and large avoiding all of those tropes you know women are in danger mm-hmm. in the show all the time but they are never in like rape danger they're never in girl danger yeah yeah they're just like like a bomb goes off and everyone who is near it gets hit and sometimes it's you know like gina but sometimes it's sinclair you know like so it's not it doesn't feel like there's a there's a you know, necessarily specific. I mean, I guess it gets into that a little bit with like Gina's bad example because that gets a, a little fridgy. But, um, well, yeah, well, G- Gina was very fridgy, and yeah. that was one of those moments where I was like, that was really, really, I was extremely disappointed. Yeah. You know, and I feel like that was kind of like a clear moment of like where season three was headed in some really shitty territory that I had thought prior to that they would never have you know lines they never would have crossed yeah you know i think gina was kind of that line you know when they when they like when they so egregiously fridged a character who only existed for the purpose of being like slaughtered in a really kind of like gratuitous manner in order you know for the service of like emotional motivation of a male character it was like i never thought the show would do it because in in seasons one and two they were so good about avoiding that yeah i'm really like intentional about it and and so this is like um yeah like so like we're gonna invent a woman that we can kill to motivate a man to do something and it's like okay well that's like this is this show is better is better than those tropes but so in in the first season so they really are very careful about that and and i think that this is one of those things that like Again, like in hindsight, looking back on it, I I can see where I don't feel like these were certainly I don't think that they were intentional choices, but it is very difficult to separate Finn's behavior from that kind of manipulative, possessive. I am the nice guy. Why don't you trust me? Why don't you listen to me? I'm the nice one. He's the bad guy. He's the asshole. I'm like, I'm the good guy kind of thing. And it's like, well, Bellamy may, you know, so it gets into some interesting questions of like, what in this circumstance actually, like, which of these two men is actually the one that's enacting kind of toxic masculinity? It isn't actually Bellamy, the big guy with the gun. It is like, it is. Yeah, no. He is the one who trusts Clark, respects her agency, completely views her legitimately as a leader, has enormous respect for her. And especially at this point in the season, you know, I think he sort of started out trying to control Octavia more, but he's like over the course of the season, in fact, like Bellamy's arc in season one is learning to respect and understand that his sister is 
her own person mm-hmm. and to let her go, you know, to like to let her make her choices, to let her be in danger without him having to like go to these really terrible lengths to try to prevent that. You know, like the whole, the 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 terrible things that Bellamy did in the first half of season one um, were because he was sort of trapped in this cycle of sort of like toxic sense of responsibility for his sister and need for control. Day trip is the point at which is is when it kind of turns to that redemption arc and that sort of atonement arc where he fully recognizes that what he's done is terrible and why he did it and he's and he's learning to do better and sort of but yeah like one of the ways that this um manifests is that you know is is like he is the one who is like fully always kind of like he doesn't view himself he's never it's never at this from this point forward it's never a competition between him and Clark about who is in charge right, you right, know like exactly. they are yeah. They are co-leaders. They are partners. And if anything, you know, like, he will defer to her, you know. So, yeah. An interesting thing about this episode and and kind of, like, digging into my... Why, like, Finn in this episode? Like, this is, like, the 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 apogee of my Finn hate. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think, you know, to use another kind of, like, modern analogy for Finn... Finn, like, I think in this episode reminds me a lot of... A certain kind of, like, self-proclaimed male feminist. Yes. Who then kind of, like, clockwork turns out to be actually manipulative, abusive, you know, like, committing... Like, the person who claims, who sort of claims moral standing, who who sort of, like, publicly proclaims that they believe the right things. And then turns out to actually still kind of... Internal having internalized sort of like a lot of these like really fucked up beliefs in their own sort of I don't even know. You can um, just say Joss Whedon. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I feel you talking around it. Let's just nope, you know what? Let's just cut to the chase. Yeah. As well, Joss Whedon, and then like there's a whole parade of, you know, like male um activists like lefty activists kind of guys who you know turns out they have been they're they're serial sexual assaulters sexual harassers or sort of or tend to be kind of like they they sort of give lip service to all the right beliefs but actually the way that their behavior still sort of is predicated on their assumption of their own you know sort of like internalized white male superiority um and and finn i think in this episode like to me that's kind of what it feels like because, like, the content of what, what he's saying, nothing is wrong. You know, again, yes, peace talks are a good idea. And and what he says, the content of what he says to, to Raven, it's not like he's necessarily wrong in what he's pointing out to her. It's that it's framed in such a way that he's not having a conversation with her. You know, he's not saying, I'm concerned, let's talk about this. The, the tone is much more like he's haranguing her. He's, like, negging her. He's like, this is dumb. You should know better. Like, like she thinks that she's right. And rather than engaging with her or listening to her, he's just kind of, like, going around, you know, haranguing Raven or then trying to manipulate Clark. And also, like, uh, everything about the way that he manipulates Clark sort of suggests that regardless of his actual position in their group, he doesn't actually respect Clark's authority. He thinks he has a perfect right to, again, to, like, make decisions for her without consulting her, to, to you know, basically, like, force her into a situation that she didn't even know about, let alone agree to, because he thinks it's best. He thinks that he automatically has the authority to make her do something because he thinks it's best, because he has no, no sort of actual genuine respect 
for either her authority or even for like, you know, like talking to her about why she believes what she believes. You right. know, well, he he acts like he's doing her a favor by entirely circumventing her agency. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So it's like it's sort of it's one of those situations where it's like it's not that I think that like the content like like Finn's going around. He's saying all the right things. He believes, quote unquote, believes all the right things. But all of his behavior is the problem. Like the every single aspect of the way he that go that he goes about it to me just like reads in a really really kind of like <laughs> yeah, like infuriating and um and manipulative and kind of accidentally low-key misogynist sort of way. And I think like that's the Finn. And the other thing about it is I feel like with Finn and I think this is partly like you were saying this is partly the outcome of Finn the peacemaker kind of comes out of nowhere and this isn't like you know he wasn't like he's been characterized as having this special belief in peace or whatever from the beginning he's just kind of like you know he fancies himself an iconoclast you know he's like especially that conversation in the beginning like he's that guy you know in like high school college who's like you know he's too cool to enjoy unity days all of you guys are just sheep you know like you know this is really like actually an evil thing that happened so like you shouldn't be having a party right now you know like it's just kind of that sort of so it, it I think that kind of contributes to the sense that there's something um insincere and so but but like I think this is this is the kind of the Finn that tracks with who what with what happens in season two insofar as Finn eventually slaughtering you know like gunning down a village full of of grounders and like executing that guy that they um captured even after Bellamy like tries to talk about it even after Bellamy's like hey dude I've been here and like it's a bad scene I think what tracks with that is is the the thing that's consistent is that you know Finn Finn sort of like latches onto what he thinks is right he has a kind of black and white sense of things like this is right that's wrong so he latches onto what he thinks the right thing is doing uh, the right thing to do is and he just goes full bore on that and he sort of he has this sort of sense of like what he believes is right, and he has the full authority and right to make that thing happen. And he doesn't have to negotiate with anybody else. He doesn't have to listen to anybody else. He doesn't have to defer to anybody else. He's just going to do what he's going to do. So right now, he believes it's peace. You know, and going full bore on that means that he's going to, you know, negotiate talks without consulting Clark. But in season two, when he's like so obsessed, and, and of course the other consistent thing is his obsession with Clark. Right, When right, he's so yeah. like wigged out and worried about Clark, he's so convinced that he's right, that the grounders have her. He's going to go full bore on this belief that they have her and they've taken her for, you know, these like terrible purposes. That sort of sense of like that, that, that um, habit he has of going all out and being totally closed off to other suggestions and believing that he has like the full right and authority to do whatever he wants is what, you know, has him wind up killing these people when everyone around him are saying, don't do that. So I think like there is a kind of internal consistency to Finn psychologically, even, you know, that I think kind of underlies all of this, despite the fact that it seems to be this like total, you know, reversal from guy who believes like, you know, pacifist to, you know, mass murder. I think the thing is that he was never a real pacifist. This is, I think, the thing that gets to me is I actually agree with you that, like, Finn's arc actually 
does have a very consistent through line. It's just that it is, it makes him a very dark, awful person. And I think we're still at this point meant to like him. Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, the, the season two thing is like they found a thread. It's not really a retcon because they found a thread that existed right, and they, right. they built on it. But I don't, they never, I don't believe that at the end when, when they finished writing season one, I do not believe that that's where they intended to go. Like that was not the plan yeah. at this point. Yeah, I, I yeah. absolutely, <laughs> I absolutely think that season one ended with him still as the love interest that was on the table and they decided at some point in yeah. the hiatus to go a different direction when, and and wrote season two sort of towards that. But yeah, because I, yeah. I think the one consistent trait that he exhibits from the moment he's introduced to us until the moment that he dies is that everything is about like not about Clark in herself but about wanting to be Clark's person like wanting to sort of eclipse everybody else around Clark in order to be her guy and sometimes it's romantic and sometimes it's about leadership and sometimes it's specifically about shouting down another voice or another idea that he doesn't like to get his own on the table even if it's poorly thought out and sometimes it's like flat out outright violence like that there's a part of him in that sort of like murder that genuinely believes that Clark would be happy that he did what he did to try to save her. Like the degree to which she doesn't actually understand who she is or what motivates her or how she thinks means like it's not really about Clark the person, you know? No, it's it's about his status in relation to Clark in a way that I think has a lot more to do with how he wants to be perceived, you know? Like he wants to Mm -hmm. be seen as... Clark's guy and that Mm -hmm. is so like that's the thing that motivates it there's a fascinating kind of dark twist to that that I think in the first season it goes there accidentally and then they sort of lean into it in season two but like the kind of girl rejects nice guy and nice guy turns dark and vindictive thread to it is Mm -hmm. interesting like it's a that's a Mm -hmm. literally that is the thing that turns privileged white guys into the kind of people who will shoot up a college campus you know it's like yeah like it is that thwarted sense of entitlement and like that's real ass shit you know and and I think what complicates it in this narrative even into season two is that we are still supposed to find Finn empathetic and we are still supposed to care about him and empathize with the characters who care about him you know like we're, we're still supposed to you know like the juxtaposition of like Finn at Raven's bedside when Abby's operating on her, you know, like holding her hand, being so kind, being there for her, you know, like being the good boyfriend. It's like that, like moments like that make it feel like that the narrative's arc is still taking us towards like we're supposed to like this character, you know, and and that this thwarted entitlement, you know, rejection of nice guy who turns violent and possessive and controlling arc is like not a thing that they wrote in there. That's just like, maybe that's just how it reads to women who have known Finn Collins's in their life. Where yeah, it's like, yeah, I don't find true. him cute and charming. I find him terrifying because he's so plausible. You know, yeah, like, like yeah. I, I am instantly squicked out by guys who say, I'm doing this for your own good. Just trust me when they remove your agency from you. That's yeah. just not like, I don't find it cute. I don't find it charming. I don't want to say thank you for that kind of treatment, you know? <laughs> right. And yeah. I, yeah. No, I, I agree. I agree. And yeah, so, so I think it's hard to know. 
Yeah, I, like you, I find it inescapable. Yeah. And yeah. I find it, like, really viscerally sort of, like, off-putting. Yeah. You know, like, like this is the kind of guy where I'm just like, I do not ever want to be alone with you or ever speak right. to you again. Right, okay? um, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you're really weird and gross, mm-hmm. and I've known many of you in my lifetime, and you were all weird and yeah. gross. <laughs> but, you know, and I, and, and yeah, I think at this point that that wasn't, deliberate and then it sort of turns later i do think there's also i mean there's a consistency to there or sort of consistent thread from this finn and then the finn you know who who kills the village and then of course the spacewalker flashbacks where you know the finn who whose kind of identity is or sort of like wrapped up in being raven's partner Mm -hmm. you know raven's boyfriend and so he you know he gives her a spacewalk at the cost of like whatever it was, two months of oxygen or two right, weeks right, of oxygen yeah. or something like that. Like some again, he did this thing, is this huge, crazy gesture, you know, like he meant well and he did not think about the consequences at all. Mm-hmm. You know, he just like did not think beyond that moment. I do think that there is also there is some truth, I think. I think there's some sort of, you know, psychological people truth in the way that that gesture, the spacewalk gesture is simultaneously genuinely kind, you know, and kind of shows, like, the genuine kindness and caring that I think Finn can have. Right, right. And that kind of, like, arrogant, egomaniacal recklessness he has, where he thinks that he can do whatever he wants and that rules are dumb and only exist, you know, to be broken and and that there aren't real consequences. There aren't real reasons for them. There aren't real consequences for him breaking them. Right. Because he's kind of a little bit unable to think beyond himself. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And so, like, Raven first and then Clark later, I think, like, this is the kind of guy, I think, where, like, the person that he's enamored with or sort of obsessed with or whatever becomes in a weird way an extension of himself yeah he loves in that way where the boundaries of his self are a little bit fuzzy and he sort of like swallows people into them and Mm -hmm. doesn't really fully understand that they are people on their own and that they have their own needs and desires and and choice and agency and so forth you know and so that's where the kind of like the genuine kindness and desire to like make raven happy or make clark happy or whatever gets sort of twisted yeah and can become a little bit dark and pushed to extremes it becomes sort of dark so it's interesting i think it you know i think season two is it was really really interesting that those are the threads that they decided to pick up and develop you know mm-hmm. i thought that was there's a really fascinating thing and daring thing to do with this character who in the first season really was i think even at this point meant to be the kind of like love interest romantic hero you know yeah even as i do think because the balearic scene at the beginning of this episode this episode like you know, Day Trip is, like, so intensely Bilark. And there's that little gun scene, you mm-hmm. know, and if we have the script pages now, so we know that it's it was, like, written as being a little bit, like, shippy, mm-hmm. you know, like, a little bit, like, some kind of connection is happening there. And then the little, like, flirtation scene at the beginning of this episode, I do think that they were starting to recognize that Bellamy and Clark was a relationship that they maybe wanted to explore, you know? So I think, like, this is a kind of point where they're beginning to, like shift things you know like I, I think that Finn and Clark were originally well you know supposed to be the thing that get together it feels like they're starting to shift but Finn is definitely still the romantic storyline for Clark in this season is her shit with Finn you know mm-hmm. and that's where he's still at so when he's this manipulative agency erasing dickbag you know and he's supposed to and it's supposed to be like a shippy storyline it's like blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why <Yeah. laughs> I don't want this Oh, and then the worst, the capper, the capper on Finn in this episode, the line I think of Finn's that makes me the most crazy is when they get back, you know, like shit goes down at the bridge, Mm -hmm. you know, because 
Like, they're all tetchy. And Jasper sees the people in the trees, and Jasper is, you know, Jasper's still paranoid. He's probably, like, I don't know, either still drunk or hungover. Mm-hmm. And he loses his cool, and, you know, so everything goes wrong. Um, they run back home, and they kind of have, like, a little bit of, like, some recriminations. Uh, where they're all, like, yelling at each other about what went wrong. And then Finn says to Clark, you didn't have to trust the grounders. You just had to trust me. And I'm like... Fuck you, buddy. Yes. Like, first of all, that, made me that is demonstrably, demonstrably untrue. She did have to trust the grounders right. to show up and follow the terms that you set and not kill her when they had the chance and not have it be an ambush. Like, first of all, you fucking so don't understand negotiations that you don't understand that they have to be predicated on. Yes, she has to trust the people with whom she's negotiating. Right. Second of all, she doesn't have any, like... On what basis is she supposed to trust you? Like, how many times have you, like, you kept Raven from her? You tried to get her to go to this thing without telling her. Like, you weren't originally going to tell her where you were taking her. Like, come on. She has every reason not to trust you. Well, and, and, and what good in this situation with things going wrong does trusting Finn do? Because Finn doesn't have a weapon. Finn doesn't have a backup plan. And so if she trusted Finn, like, it's as though in the, like, this is why it makes me crazy. That line makes me crazy. Because in this moment, he's still convinced that he was right. Even despite all of the evidence that he played this wrong. Because Anya did bring backup. And the only reason that they aren't all dead is because Clark also brought backup. Like, and yes, Jasper fucked up. And if Jasper, like, if they had kept their cover, who knows what would have happened. But, like, the fact is that he guessed wrong. And Anya did bring soldiers. And so if Clark... And not just the one you could see. Not just, like, the guys on horses with bows on their laps. Right, like, Like she brought snipers that she hid in the trees because Anya didn't fucking trust you as she shouldn't have. So like this what makes me crazy (laughs) is like, okay, so say she had fully trusted Finn, done everything that he said, completely put her life in his hands. How would that have benefited her Finn was not in control. Exactly. Well, he thinks he is. That's the problem with Finn. He genuinely thinks if you just trusted me and left everything in my control, it would have been fine. And he does not understand how, like, mind-bogglingly untrue that is. You know? And, like, not to mention the fact, so, like, so, like, let's say, okay, so the reason it went so spectacularly wrong with, like, shots fired is because of Jasper, which was Bellamy's miscalculation. Bellamy brought the wrong person. And, like, really, that was just, like, the writers being, like, we need this shit to go as wrong as possible. Like, who's going to be a loose cannon here is going to be Jasper. Right. Okay, fine, whatever. But like, so that was Bellamy's miscalculation. But at the point when that happened, like part of the reason why Jasper was getting more sort of agitated then is because the negotiations were already going south. Right. You know, grounder princess looks pissed. Our princess has that effect, whatever. Mm. Even if, so let's say that Clark hadn't brought backup and like, so shots were never fired. The negotiations were already failing. Yeah. Because as Anya... Anya understands and Anya rightly points out Clark does not have any standing or authority to negotiate for her people. Right. So Anya says like Clark's like let's you know like let's make a truce when we come down like we can all work together and Anya's like can you promise that when they show up they will honor this and Clark being honest is like I can try and Anya's like that's nothing. Right. So you you can't actually tell you can't make this alliance right. and you really think I'm going to make a deal with you that you could break whenever you feel like it when you have these people you keep telling me are coming down and then Clark misplays it by saying like well you better work with me because otherwise 
otherwise, when my people come down, we're going to wipe you out. You know, so Clark goes to intimidation. Even if Jasper hadn't run out of the trees and started, fire, you know, firing wildly at the assassins, those negotiations were already over. Yeah. It was already done. Yeah. Because they did not have a fucking leg to stand on. Because they didn't stop to think about it. They didn't stop to ask. What can, What are we going to offer? What are we, what are they even asking for? Right. They don't even know. But this is why you spend time planning these things, Finn, instead of just going off half cocked and like showing up and being like, whatever, we'll just talk. It'll be fine. Like, right. right. Like, yeah. Like if, like if he actually wanted to make peace, what he should have done is like, wait for the adults to come down, figure out who's in charge and then like go for like with the people who actually can make the treaty on behalf of all of the sky people. Yeah. Which is definitely not right. him, but it, at this point isn't even Clark because now they yeah. know, you know, or what they believe they know at the time before the ship blows up is that a shit ton of guards with guns are coming down that the first wave is all going to be the soldiers which Kane mm-hmm. like Kane says like when he's talking to Vera like what we know of the plan is that the first wave of the Exodus ship is going to be like all the people like Kane it's going to be big scary warrior gun people because their assumption of what's happening on the ground is that the kids are at war against a hostile enemy mm-hmm, exactly they're not you know like no matter what Clark says about farmers and engineers like the farmers and engineers aren't going to be in the first wave the first wave is going to be like mm-hmm. you know the colonizers right and yeah, so like yeah. Anya's instincts are totally solid and Finn is a fucking moron if Finn thinks that Clark on behalf of this scrappy group of 90 something children can like <laughs> make a pact for all of humanity when she can't even contact the Ark to be like hey just to confirm like the last and this comes up again in season two like I think when I don't know if it's Jaha or whoever said that when they arrive oh no it's Pike in, in season three when he's like the last we heard from you guys the kids were like at war with the grounder yeah like last yeah. word that we got on the Ark you know and and Nothing was ever, like, no new information ever superseded that. You know, Pike never knew a version of this story where peace and cooperation and teamwork and a grudging peace treaty and the relationship between Clark and Lexa made things possible in terms of, like, creating a grounder and, like, Sky People Alliance. Yeah, last he knew, all those kids that he spent two weeks trying to figure out how to save that he wanted to go down with to protect were being slaughtered by these random strangers on the ground like that's what that's all that he knew and then his experience when he landed fully backed that perception up yeah yeah so like so that that storyline starts here with like this is the understanding of what everyone in the arc has of the ground and thus Anya's understanding of how the people on the arc work is like fully based in reality like that literally is what they would do that is what would happen Mm -hmm. Kane and Pike and the guards and the you know soldiers and whatever would like land and they would shoot all the grounders and take their land like that is exactly what would happen and you know and so I feel like there's I just yeah I think just the assumption on Finn's part that peace is possible is again like the reason that he does it the way he does the reason that he isn't actually waiting to put this in the hands of a joint task force of adults and the kids on the ground strategizing this together is because what he wants has less to do with averting a war and more to do with getting the credit for averting a war 
Well, and also I think it's just a sort of like ignorance of the fact that peace is not easy or simple. Right. Right. That it's a process, a long process of figuring out how to trust each other and and figuring out what each group wants and Mm -hmm. needs and trying to figure out if there is a compromise that is acceptable to both, including in that compromise some whatever like sense of justice that each side Mm -hmm. needs for the losses that it's already sustained. That's the part that he just like totally discounts. He's just like, oh, he's kind of like hand wave, whatever. We can, you know, well, that's not a big deal. We'll figure it out. It's like that, that is it. That is all of it. And, And like it is. It's even stupider that he kind of rushes this when you remember, like, the first Exodus ship was supposed to come down in two days. Right. Two days is not that long. Like, you you could have easily just been, like, our actual leaders, the leaders of all of our people are coming down in two days. You can talk to them. Like, that's, you know. Right. Like, it didn't have to happen 12 hours later. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> like, none of this happened to happen that fast. Right, except that, like, this is his last chance to get sole credit for being the guy that brokered the peace treaty all on his own with no help from anybody else. Because if he waited, yeah. then it would be in the hands of somebody like Jaha. Right, exactly, exactly. So so it's like it's impossible to separate it from being about him positioning himself a certain way with Clark. Yeah. And because it isn't actually the smart, careful, well thought out thing to do on any level, you know, and and just and no. just the sheer amount of information that he doesn't have, like Anya bringing up the flares that they sent up to signal the arc, like a tiny gesture that they thought had no consequences. And they came back down to mm-hmm. earth and they burned a village to the ground. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that throwaway moment that like up until that point only exists to us, to our side of the story in plot significance because that's how Abby and Jaha realize that the kids are alive and that there's so, like there's somebody alive on the ground because Abby sees the flares and then we don't think about them really again after that because yeah like yeah. you know this is our first little taste of how every little thing that they've done lands with huge significance to people on the other side of the story and Finn doesn't stop to examine any of that you know he only talks to Lincoln and Lincoln doesn't speak for those people yeah exactly Exactly. And like, I think, you know, this kind of shows, you know, that again, how amazing Clark Griffin is that she had clearly never contextualized their actions in that mm-hmm. way either. But when Anya gives her, Anya gives her like the grounders perspective of everything that's happened so far and says, these are acts of war, you can see Clark recalibrating and, and you know, so she's able to sort of realize like, okay, yes. I understand your perspective. Yeah. I see exactly what you're saying. Let's see, like, I just want to figure out if there's another way that we can start over, you yeah. know, that was something that we can do to sort of avert this, this war that we didn't mean to start. That's another thing with Finn wanting Clark to show up alone, I think also is like such a miscalculation. It's like negotiations of this kind are symbolic. They're pageantry, right? Like to have her show up alone mm. without backup, without any kind of dignitaries, like that signals weakness. That signals yeah. naivete. Yeah. You know, that that says to Anya, like, you don't need to take these people seriously. They have no idea what they're doing, which is true. Mm. But you don't want to send that signal, right. you know? So it's just like, yeah. But yeah, like, so, yeah. I will say there's a kind of like... I, love, I do love everything about this episode except for Finn. <laughs> we've been like, rant, you know, we've been like ranting about Finn's stupid plan so much. But like everything, I like the way, you know, everything else about the way that it's done in terms of like ratcheting up the tension and, you know, just like 
tons and tons and tons of awesome little character moments, Mm -hmm. you know, Bellamy and Jasper and Raven kind of all working together, sassing each other. This is, this episode also has some A plus Raven sassing Bellamy content, which is also like, I always love, you know, there's some really great lines. So it's like super duper fun. And of course, like any episode that contains Anya, let alone introduces her is wonderful because Anya is just like so awesome. Like I love Anya so much, you know, as a foil to Clark, Mm. you know, as a sort of like young female leader who is not impressed with you know like anyone who isn't impressed with Clark is always interesting yes. because Clark is always just so a little bit like uh yeah. wait a yeah. second hang on uh. <laughs> <laughs> like wait what do I do if you're not like automatically impressed with me um <laughs> but like she's also like Anya is just like you know she has such amazing presence and I and there's like a bunch of like little touches I think in her dialogue that are really fascinating you know we've talked in the past about the ways that grounders are sort of coded as indigenous people in various sorts of ways and with some sort of baggage that sort of culturally comes with indigenous people in both good and bad ways. But I think in that sense, when Anya says, why would I make an alliance that your people can break at any time? I think there's interesting little suggestion there, a reference there to all of the many, many treaties with American Indian tribes Mm -hmm. that we have broken over the years. Like the history of North America is built on people arriving on this land and making treaties with the people who are already there because they need them at the time and then breaking them later, you know, like, so like this, it it feels like there's a certain kind of like satisfaction to this moment of Anya being like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not falling for that. Yeah. I'm not doing that. (laughs) You know, like, (laughs) you think I'm going to make a treaty that you can just break? No. (laughs) That is not how this is going to play. Girl is not um, stupid. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, honey, we've been here before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are not doing this again. <laughs> I am with you. I, I just, I love Anya so much. I, I love everything about her. And, and this, this really is, you know, I think the way that she's introduced is so fantastic. You know, like she's so badass looking, you know, and mm-hmm. she's like strutting across that bridge and you're just like, Oh my God, what's she going to do? Is she going to like fuck everything up? But I, I think the um Anya and Lincoln in two very different ways. Like, you know, they're, they're, they're the first two grounder characters that we actually like meet, you know, like that get names, that mm-hmm. get personalities, that get sort of, we get a sense of where they're placed in the grounder hierarchy, even though of course it's very different. And, and what I like about what Anya brings to the table, aside from just being super awesome and giving us our first little glimpse of the kind of lovely running thread that most of the grounder leaders that we meet are women Mm -hmm. but what i like about what she brings to the table is that like is how deftly just everything about who she is as a person and as a leader pushes back very nicely against that kind of lurking savage in the trees kind of coding that the early introduction of the grounders got you know like where yeah they're sort of treated as like primitive tree dwelling tribal savages who don't speak English. And that depiction of them does get more fleshed out and nuanced. And we do see as the season progresses that some of that was intentionally misleading, like Lincoln pretending mm-hmm, like didn't speak English. Mm-hmm. And stuff like that. But then you meet Anya and, you know, and hearing how, how she thinks, and not just that, of course, that she speaks flawless English because they all do, but also that like, <laughs> you know, but the political sophistication that she evinces in the way that she's dealing and negotiating with Clark is our first real insight into the fact that like the structure of grounder society is actually substantially more complex than 
what our first little glimpses of them when they were basically like just stabbing kids in the woods and running away was like leading us to believe, you know, like that this is their leader Mm -hmm. and, you know, and she's not a like, like she didn't get to be the leader because she's the strongest, you know, like some like giant beast with a club, just like smashing people. It's like, she's a politician. She's an actual honest to God politician, Mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, and so that I think was just really, that was always just her as a person is so interesting to me. And it's our first real kind of pulling back a little bit and beginning to expand our lens into the grounder world that then in season two, of course, you know, when we get to know Lexa and the clan Alliance and Indra and, you know, and get a sense of sort of how the piece fit together. And then in season three, we go to Polo. So we sort of get like a kind of a bigger and bigger and bigger lens into their world. But I feel like the introduction of Anya is our first kind of peek at like, this isn't just, you know, a sort of like clan of violent savages. Cause like even, even Lincoln, Lincoln's characterization actually still supports that limited read on who the grounders are. Like that Lincoln is ostracized for being nonviolent, for not wanting to be a murdery warrior all the time. So like he lives in a cave because he's like the outcast because he's a pacifist. So like even Lincoln in some way is like him being presented as existing in reaction to this supports and upholds that kind of narrative and Anya's as does Luna later because Luna also has to like leave her society entirely and start a new one on the basis of her rejection of exactly yeah and and Anya is as a leader and as a politician like Anya is not afraid of violence or unwilling to use violence or unwilling to order the using of violence but she is enough of a politician like she did show up you know, like she didn't yeah, show up yeah. and she did this, you know, she brought back up, but she kept them hidden. You know, she got off her horse mm-hmm. and walked across the bridge, you know, like she's playing the political game. And so her level of savvy and her understanding of how Sky Crew works and of how political negotiations work is just, it's our, it's like, it's noteworthy, not just because she's so cool, but because you're like, okay, this is our first real peak that we're getting into the fact that the enemy that they're up against, because at this point, of course, they're still the enemy, is is actually substantially more knowledgeable and sophisticated and therefore threatening than if it was just like... Boogeymen in the yeah, trees. Yeah, forest assassins. Basically, yeah. yeah, like that there's, there's a political infrastructure here and they understand how how our guys work. You know, like they, yeah. they, they know like Clark does not intimidate her. Right. And I think like this, this episode really feels to me like where the show found who they wanted the grounders to be. Yeah. Like this, this feels like the point. There's a kind of like a lot of, you know, there's a lot of stuff early in the season one that, that in retrospect, you know, that given where things have gone, kind of doesn't make any sense. Those guys running around in the forest still feel to me like, in this world, they're kind of like, they don't really fit with the MO of any other grounder, group of grounders we've ever met. You know, they sort of feel like, I don't know, like those are the guys who are too violent, even, you know, or like too, too like crazy Mm -hmm. to be soldiers. So now they're just like weirdos who hang out in the woods killing people for fun or something, you know, like that, that seems to be like, they don't seem to fit with, the kind of behavior that becomes canonical grounder culture later on, which is like, you know, a very military society. But like a military society is very sort of ordered, hierarchized society. Like military societies are not like crazy wild, like whatever. Yeah, they're military. They fight a lot of wars, but like they tend to be very regimented and there's, there's sort of like rules and procedures to how you go about these things. 
So this this is the episode really feels like they kind of like the show like figured out who the grounders were right. and who they wanted them to be. Like this this feels this actually is the episode that feels like the starting point of everything that we learn about the grounders through the rest of the seasons and everything before that kind of feels a little bit like it sort of it almost feels a little bit like extra canonical now yeah yeah where you're like there probably is an explanation for it that we are never given but it feels a little bit like like not quite a retcon but sort of like a definitive departure from that previous kind of conception of who these characters yeah are. like the first the first experiences of grounders are feel like now they seem to to be anomalies yeah and we yeah. don't really know what what those anomalies were or why they were there but like Whatever they were, they aren't in line with what we know later. Right. And this is the point where, like, Anya showing up, you know, being Anya with her guys, you know, kind of, like, being very politically savvy and and sort of honest, obviously understanding kind of, like, the structures and hierarchies of, of political negotiation, negotiation among groups. Like, this is a different, you know, this is the grounders that we know later on. Exactly. And this is, seems yeah. to be sort of distinct from, like, a bunch of dudes booby-trapping trees. Right. <laughs> It reminds me of a little bit like when I when I was studying abroad in college and I was studying in Galway and we took a like weekend trip up to Belfast like a couple of the girls in my program and and we took a there's like a, a company I think it's like Black Cab Tour or something it's like the one kind of authorized tourist kind of um company that like would take you on tours through all of the sort of like war-torn districts in Belfast and and it's the one kind of politically neutral one it's like half the drivers are Catholic and half of them are Protestant you're not supposed to know who's who um and uh so they sort of drive you through you know like all of these like you see like all those sort of political murals and they give you this kind of like sort of insider political history of you know Belfast and this was in 2001 I was there and and the thing that I found the most fascinating and also sort of terrifying that one of the that our driver told us that I think about actually all the time because I think it it plays so very much into a lot of like modern political, you know, kind of situations that we have is he said, you know, like there's a sort of perception that people who don't live in Northern Ireland have that like the violence is like you know, like the IRA on one side and then you have the UVF on the other side and that those two are the ones that are like bombing and blowing shit up, you know? And, and he said like, you know, like the, the IRA is a like, it's a wing of a political party. You know, like Sinn Féin's a political party. Mm -hmm. The IRA is like their militia, essentially. But mm -hmm. like they are, you know, they're an established political entity. They have like government representation. And the UVF is the same way. Like they are, they're big entities. They have big goals. They have leaders that can sort of sit down and parlay with each other. And so they, so you can negotiate with them. But he said the problem right. is that there are dozens, if not hundreds of fringe groups that nobody can control whose whose goals are maybe aligned with the IRA on one side or the UVF on the other side but they don't answer to the IRA and yeah, and, and yeah, they have yeah. no skin in the game if you know like the big leaders are sitting down you know if Sinn Féin sits down for a parlay with uh, some other like if, if people are like having like political sort of treaty conversations but you still have all of these tiny scrappy groups who don't answer to anybody who don't who, who essentially just want chaos you know and I, yeah, and I think a lot yeah. of the, you know, like, I think Hamas, you know, is a lot like that. Like Hamas can be negotiated yeah. with, but a lot of the groups that support Hamas's goals and aims, but without the same level of kind of institutional credibility or the same way, you know, and, um, and then it all kind of gets lumped together. And so, so I do wonder a little bit, like, not that this is ever made, you know, sort of canon, but I wonder a little bit if perhaps 
what we're meant as we get to know a bigger sort of fuller picture of the grounders is part of what we're meant to understand of tree crew because a they're the ones who kind of live on the fringes and that they're the ones who in whose territory the sky crew ship lands that like the you know that the grounders who are sort of running around wantonly you know killing sky crew people throughout the course of season one like are in fact sort of like scrappy fringe you know like like renegade this terrorist essentially yeah 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 and, and that and that perhaps like anya is not stopping them from doing that but nor did she order them to do that and you know and that potentially like they're just kind of you know you see an enemy you stab them and and that that they sort of are Existing in their own little little way, and I, ke- I think I kept wanting. Yeah, and theoretically, theoretically, it does make sense. Like if if Lexa's alliance of the twelve clans is new, which I think mm-hmm. in season two they say it's only a couple of years old, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, it would make sense that there would be sort of like splinter kind of radical groups of people who might have even splintered off from the clans who never wanted that. Exactly. You know, who, yeah. Who didn't go Just along with the clans. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Who are who sort of like maybe they don't even care. Mm-hmm who the kids are, you know, they're just, they're just trying to fuck up the alliance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they're just yeah. trying to like cause, you know, cause conflict and start a war wherever they can to try to splinter this, mm-hmm. um, this alliance that they're opposed to. So, I mean, like, you know, this is all headcanning, but right, like, right, yeah. yeah, you, there's like plenty of ways that you could, that you could headcanon explanations for who they are and yeah. why they're just yeah. <laughs> building elaborate booby traps in the woods. Right. I, I think, I, I certainly think that the most realistic explanation is just that the writers decided it's more interesting if we give the grounders some nuance. Let's kind of move. Yeah, away yeah, from yeah. That. No, I yeah. think I think it is just sort of like they figured out who they wanted them to be, and I'm right. and you know like and I'm glad they did. And it's a yeah. I think we're all happy that it went that direction yes. and not like continuing with whatever it was before. Yeah. But yeah, so it's one of those things. Like it's not really you know it's it's like in in any kind of genre show like this one in the first season. You're always gonna especially if it's not working from. You know, like, technically there's books, but the book hadn't been finished. You know, they're kind of, like, on their own. Um, There's always going to be that stuff where it's sort of, like, it started out in one direction, they changed their mind and went in a different direction. Things aren't always going to line up. And so, like, whatever, it's fine. Like, they they made a choice and they went with it. And, like, we can all make up our own personal reasons to explain the disparities if we feel like it or not. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Until such time as canon settles it, which I don't think it will. Right, right. (laughs) It seems kind of irrelevant now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Now we've all moved on. Yeah, exactly. They're all dead anyway in Prime Fight. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming the guys in the woods didn't get a spot in the bunker. So yeah, they're gone. They're yeah. they're wiped out. <laughs> uh, indeed. Yes, indeed. You know, I feel it's sort of bad because this is an episode where I have a lot to say about, like, you know, Finn, and there's a lot of ranting, but you know. The stuff that I really, really like, I don't have a lot to say about other than, like, <laughs> it's so cute. I like the Balark scenes. They're fun. I like Raven sassing Bellamy. It's fun. But I don't really have anything else, you know, of depth or interest to say about it. <laughs> you? This is, a, this is a very good Cabby episode as it well. But really again, I sort of feel is, like yeah. it's like, oh, yay, Cabby. And there's, like, not actually a ton to say about Cabby. It's just kind of, like, nice moments. Yeah, it's, well, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I do, it is, it really is a good caveat episode, and it leads to, although we'll have to wait a whole other episode to get there, but the, the calm <laughs> is actually one of my favorite 
cabbie episodes. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, and actually one of my one of my favorite Kane episodes, and and you know, R.I.P. the time in our lives when we liked Wick because that Kane and Wick storyline uh, is such a yes. It's like I'm sorry you're turned out to be an asshole. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like something has been taken away from you because I just loved that like little moment between them so much. But um, yeah, uh, but yeah, but I so I, yeah, I love the the cabbie content and this is so great and I just love the the sort of you know introducing the X factor of Diana Sydney just kind of like letting them be like a sleuth team. I was just like, oh, yes. <laughs> but it is also, but I do, I do what I remember of when I watched this episode the first time that this being one where like both, both in the arc storyline and on the ground storyline, I think more than almost any of the other episodes leading up to this, this leaves you with this sense and both halves of the storyline where you're just like, how the fuck are they going to get out of this? You know, like, how, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like what all we know of the arc is that they don't have a ship anymore. We don't like, yes, we don't know if anyone's alive, but we know that they don't have a way to get to the ground. And then down on the ground, we know help isn't coming. A treaty isn't possible. And they've started a war now. And they basically. just made it worse. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yep. And so, yep. so in terms of a cliffhanger, this is a really, really good one in both halves of the yes. storyline because you're like, I genuinely can't conceive in my head, like, like no, no, you know, with, without knowing what happens next, you can't imagine how anyone is going to get out of any of these situations, which I love. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, it's, this is like a, one of the best episodes of season one. Like this is a great oh, episode yeah. because also both episodes, both storylines, like the tension ratchets up so perfectly, mm-hmm. you know, like Things kind of build and build and build until they blow up in, yeah. like, really perfect kind of, like, satisfying and, you know, in, like, fun ways. Like, this is just a really, really, really well-crafted episode from top to bottom. It really is. And it, and it is that sort of, like, you know, that kind of explosive, no pun intended, but, like, that, you know, <laughs> a lot of the a lot of the tensions and the sort of, like, simmering kind of dramas of the first eight episodes of the season, like... It's like this is this is sort of like the chickens coming home to roost moment, you know, like yeah, everything in the arc storyline lining up to make it possible for Diana to steal the Exodus ship, you know, like the culling, the sort of political shakeup, Abby getting kicked off the council and being replaced by Diana, like all the sort of chess pieces lined up in a row to make it possible for her to do the crazy thing that she does that completely screws over everyone and leaves them with no options. Right. And like pushes them to these sort of batshit solutions. Exactly. And then on the ground. And then, and then also I think like this is that this episode is really like, like we talked a little bit before a sort of perfect culmination of all of the sort of like class tensions and divisions Mm -hmm. on the arc that they've sort of set up from the beginning, the sort of sense of like, the privileged and the workers and so forth, all of yeah, that yeah. coming to a head and and sort of ending in catastrophe. So it sort of like brings all that stuff together and pays it off really well. And I think on the ground, actually, I do think this episode, you know, in addition to introducing all these new complications um, for them in terms of like no help is coming and ratchet- ratcheting up the sort of hostilities with the grounders that's going to push us towards the um you know the last few episodes of endgame in terms of like action and plot i also think this episode does a really good job of kind of like pushing the tensions the sort of like love triangle tensions among clark finn and raven particularly between finn and raven to a head and then also kind of like 
really pushing Clark and Finn, you know, they sort of like drive, like wedge them apart a little bit at the end of this episode and really solidify Mm -hmm. her partnership with, with Bellamy. So I think like on the Raven side, you know, like Finn comes to her, he kind of like, he's, he's sort of a little bit hostile to her. He's a little bit mad at her. And then when, when Bellamy comes later to find Jasper and says, you're going to want to come with me, you know, Raven has that moment where she says, where's Clark? Um, And there's kind of an uncomfortable silence. And she says, she's Mm -hmm. with Finn, isn't he? Isn't she? And, you know, like Raven sees them holding hands, you know. So all of this, the like little subtle moments throughout this episode that kind of like register Raven's frustration with Finn, her her feeling that he's moving away, her like observation that he continues to sort of like carry on this at least emo- like quasi-emotional affair with Clark, at least sort of semi-one-sided. Right, right. Um, even while he's with her, that will culminate in the next episode with Raven finally breaking up with him. So I think that's really well set up. And, you know, and I think also, like, in this episode, you sort of, like, this is the episode that sort of solidifies Clark and Bellamy, I think, and again, in a lot of really small ways, the way that they're sort of partners, you know, the, the chatting, the sort of flirty chatting at the beginning, but also her coming to find him, you know, like, her automatic sort of thing, like, mm-hmm. he's my backup, her telling him, you know, like, Finn doesn't have to know, um, they're sort of, like, shared right. looks of exasperation with, you know, the situation with Finn at the end. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this is also an episode, I think, in kind of more quiet ways where the very like there's some sort of subtle shifts in alliances and relationships uh among these sort of key foursome on the ground that also is going to set up how things shake out for the last four episodes and i guess that's true on the arc too with yeah. like Kane. like this is the episode that really sets up that Kane and abby are going to have you know like that their sort of interactions their relationship is going to be important for the sort of like the the way that things are going to fall out on the arc in the last four episodes. So yeah, that they this is really where where they shift from being um, adversaries to being allies, and you know, and I think so. I think that there are that yeah, it, there's a lot of some of it is table setting for the finale, but some of it is also really like the sort of things that have been building and simmering in the first nine episodes or the first eight episodes. Everything kind of clicks into place where like these are the units that you're going to be, you know, for this sort of, like, as we sort of head into the end run of the season, you know, like, Kane and Abby are a unit, Clark and Bellamy are a unit, Finn and Raven are not a unit, you know, like, all of these sort of little, like, moving the pieces around, and as things kind of crescendo. Clark still has a relationship with Finn, but her allegiance to Bellamy is stronger, you know, like, that has sort of shifted. Yeah, and I think, like, I think, you know, one of the things about, like, this episode that makes it, so strong is that it is doing a lot of relationship work, a lot of like uh, table setting work sort of in relationship and plot table setting work, but you don't notice, you know, because all of it, because it is simultaneously doing sort of a bunch of relationship and plot table setting and telling a really, really good self-contained story. Exactly. So, so like that, all of that table setting feels really seamless. It it happens without you noticing it because it's so well integrated into the story of this episode itself. And that's something that like is really, is really satisfying. And like, you know, there were some episodes in season four, I think, where that was like way less you know, like neatly executed. You know, there's like a little, there's there's certain places where the kind of like the scenes show a little bit, you know? Um, mm-hmm. But in this case, in this episode, it's really just, like, flawless. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yes. Good job, oh. Kim Shumway and Kira Snyder. Yay! Yes. Such a good one. <laughs> All Alrighty. right. 
So we will be back again in two weeks with episode 110, I Am Become Death, the triumphant return of blood spatter John Murphy. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> which is very exciting. Blood spattered murderous John Murphy. Yes. This is, oh, this is the, where they all get sick, right? This is like the Yeah, blood. yeah. This yeah, is where they, yeah. they like, this is the biological warfare episode. Yeah. And then he, and then he asphyxiates a bunch of people out of revenge. Yep. <laughs> It's going to be very exciting. Yes. There's also some really great Blark stuff in that one as well. Yes. <laughs> we do not get any arc, which is a bummer, but yes. I am willing to make that concession because what we get in 111 is so glorious because there's first documented cabbie snuggling. So I'm willing to wait <laughs> <laughs> another episode. <laughs> so so if For you're snuggles. if you're a Bullark fan, you can look forward to some squealing about that next podcast. And then if you're a cabbie fan we got you for the 111 <laughs> podcast. And if you're a fan of neither of those pairings, we apologize in advance. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll have lots of Murphy and everyone loves Murphy. <laughs> yeah, and we'll timestamp everything so you can just skip it if you want to. Exactly, yeah. Anyway, yes. All right. Hooray. See you in two weeks. Bye. Bye.